Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Are you on, Phil? Might as well just cover this. We're on. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think a great app for Doug, and you could call it the Doug Duran, would be like you just turn your phone on. This would save Doug. This would save Doug a lot of trouble, especially if he cuts all of his fingers off in a farm accident. <laughs> like, yeah, he's looking. He's already got a maimed up finger. <laughs> if Doug had an app that he could just turn his phone on, right? Turn like the voice recorder on, and it would just fact check everything everybody told him for him, anyways. And then do alerts when he found a problem. <laughs> so that way Doug could like maintain eye contact with people he's talking to yep. and not be busy typing everything you tell him into his phone to find out that what you said isn't actually true. Yeah, right. He's fact checking you while still part of the conversation. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, you know, acorns, you know, they seems they sure they drop around, you know, October second. <laughs> well, actually, you know, if you look, it's like yeah, we, October first is peak acorn drop day. We had an argument about how many uh, a discussion I should say about how many acorns <laughs> an oak tree drops. Uh when Steve was at the place one time and um I don't know. It was widely varying. I said 10,000. He said 1,000 or something like that. And we were trying to find it on uh, Google as I do. and uh, <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm talking. Right. As he's talking. <laughs> right. And uh, at that moment, a friend of mine calls and I said, well, this guy will know. And Steve goes, okay, this is the, whatever he says is the answer. And I think he said 1,000. And he's, I'm no longer friends with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a conversation to have with Clay. I'm like taking my you know. I'm taking my kids to Doug, to Doug Duran's this spring, and um, a lot of enthusiasm about ditch burning because no. <laughs> they got to burn ditches at Doug's, and they like anything that's on fire. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, and imagine a fire that's 300 yards long. <laughs> it's like there's like for a kid there's you know. Nothing bad. Yeah, because the problem with every fire is, in their mind, every fire is not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> but here's a fire that runs way down the road. <laughs> with a creek in the middle of it, too. That's the other yeah, part. Yeah, it's like it's... everything you possibly want. <laughs> right. That way you can, get, you can get burnt and two soakers. <laughs> <laughs> and just stuff. to keep the yeah. excitement alive, this past spring, I ended up moving the fire across the road and damn near burning my oh. pine trees down. Yeah, I was getting a little stressed out. The pine duff caught on fire. Yeah. Mm. So the next thing you know, we had a hose down there and Jimmy was getting fire instructions from <laughs> Steve. I felt like putting a little helmet on him. They were like, okay, dial uh, nine one and put your finger on the one. <laughs> 
Uh, all right, so Doug's obviously here. That was, uh, Sean Weaver's here. Corinne, Spencer Newhart's way down in the corner. Uh, Spencer's going to hit us with another little Google fact before we proceed. Phil, who looked like a skater a minute ago, but you took that skater hat off. Uh, this, is, this is the hat I wear when um, my hair looks like shit. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Warm Springs production hat. That's right. Cute little bang sticking out of there, T-shirt. Oh, thanks, man. Richie. Richie won. Tell, tell everybody what you won, Richie. And were you surprised when you won? Uh, yeah, no, I was, I was way surprised. Nothing like that ever happens to me. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm the podcast winner, the trivia giveaway. So, so how, how did, the, how did we know, how did like Meat Eater notify you that you won the thing and were coming to play <laughs> trivia? Uh, well, I was really bad about checking my email that week that I won and I almost missed out on it. Uh, oh, like they almost moved on to the next almost person. Almost moved on to the next person. Do you know person. That, that's, that that's actually really strict? I, I, I believe it. It has to be, right? When I've been involved in TRCP giveaways, um, there's sort of like the set thing. It's like there's this set cadence in which you notify. Right, especially and when you And then you have playing. to like bump along and you can't, it, yeah, I'll, I'll <laughs> spare everybody. But anyways, you probably, you probably did get lucky. I, very lucky because uh, uh, one of your colleagues actually found my number somewhere and Corinne called me out of the blue. See, she uh, might have broke some kind of law. Maybe. I don't know what your guys' <laughs> laws are on that, but... <laughs> Yeah, Richie. like the sweepstakes people. Sweepstakes like the people sweepstakes somebody. version of the ATF is going to kick the doors down. I hope not. <laughs> kick the door age, down and arrest Corinne. At what age do you decide if you're Richie with a Y or Richie with an IE? I did I that. see you're with Ooh, a Y. Oh, no, I did, oh, I did that. Oh. What, do you, what do you use? Oh, Y. Uh, you do Y? So you do R-I-C-H-Y. Yeah, since I learned how to write my name. Tucson, Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. If you had to put your uh, trivia skills on a sliding scale of 1 to 10, where would you land it? Uh, depends on the day of the week. Really? Some, <laughs> yeah. days you, some days you're pretty hot. Some days I'm hot, some days I'm not. Really? Yeah. Spencer, hit him with a sample trivia. <laughs> a sample trivia? A sample trivia. Here's my favorite trivia question. <laughs> we use it all the time. Okay. Okay. Well, let me think of a good one. Name for me. Uh, okay. <sighs> I've, I've got a good one, but oh, I don't, don't, don't want to burn it because I gave it to Spencer and it'll be a good one. For oh, here's a good trivia. one. This is watch this segue. Pronounce this <laughs> word for me. <laughs> oh, cows, coos, which version do you want? Oh, see, he already won. I already know that. <laughs> All right. that, that the, the, answer, the answer was, the correct answer was, depends. <laughs> I have me a brand new uh, sticker from Jim Heffelfinger, who's also here, and Ross Copperman from First Lights here, my esteemed colleague. Great to be here. Uh, Jim Heffelfinger. Um, I don't want to say you and Doug are my favorite people, but you're up there. That's up good. There. I'll I take know it. it's me, Jim. Yeah. Um, Brought me a sticker that says, see, here, here's the problem with the sticker. There's no <laughs> gonna, problem okay, with the sticker. I, yeah, no, I'm going to read it like this. It's a sticker with a picture of Elliot Coos. Elliot Kaus. Well, okay. Get, Cows. Just okay. like C-O-W-Z. Elliot, okay. This guy believed in yeah. levitation. Yeah. He was kind of a crackpot. Right? He was kind of a crackpot. He was like, yep. he, he had some hits. As all brilliant some, people are. Yeah, he had some hits and some misses. Uh, <laughs> pronounced his name. Cows. 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 And now there's a spirited debate whether you say a coos deer or a cow's deer. I would say there's not much debate. Everybody says coos. There is because I always return to, um, I didn't know that these things existed until I became a subscriber to Western Hunter Magazine, published by Chris Denham. Chris Denham, yeah. Okay. And... 
Chris Denham told me that he'll say coos till the day he dies <laughs> and he doesn't care what anybody says. <laughs> yeah. So I just adopted. There's a lot of people like that. I adopted that. But Heffelfinger actually wrote, you wrote like an academic paper. No, a magazine article. Oh, I'm which sorry. Be in the, yeah, it'll be in the next issue of the Arizona Wildlife Views. And it goes into all the detail but, about but, why but, it's cows. Okay, go ahead. Hit me with it. T- talk me into it. Because I'm not going to switch, but talk me into it. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> and, and, and that's the issue. Oh, I didn't tell the good part of the sticker. The good part of the sticker says, it says, Coos white-tailed deer. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it says, Coos white-tailed deer. Butcher the deer, not the name. Before you go, before you talk, I'm going to point something out. You, when you write white-tailed deer, you do white hyphen tailed. Mm-hmm. When we do books and our books go to the final copy edit person, like the real crackpot copy editors, they always do that. They always change it to that. And I always stet it. You stet it. <laughs> Meaning I always reject the correction. And I make it say white tail. So you're wrong on a couple counts on that one sticker. <laughs> well, <laughs> six inch sticker and you've got two errors on Let it. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Are you familiar with um, um, like uh, when it comes to English language use, there's sort of like two dictionaries, right? There's two types, descriptive Mm-mm. and prescriptive. Nope. Meaning one seeks to describe how the language is used and one seeks to advise on how to use the language. I tend to be more descriptive. Descriptive. And when I see a deer, like let's say I'm sitting there in a place that has mule deer and whitetails and someone says, oh shit, there's a deer. Okay. Do I say, oh no, that's a white-tailed deer? I don't. I'll go, that's a whitetail. <clears throat> I say whitetail. Right. But when I write it, the, the, you know, the correct way to write it is white-tailed deer. So when you write it, it has to be, as a biologist, it has to be white-tailed deer. But in a magazine, I say whitetails. Oh, you do? When I'm sitting behind binoculars, I say whitetails. White-tail. Talk me, t- tell me why it's cows and I'll never bring it up for the rest of my life. But I won't, <laughs> I won't switch, That's but I'll never true. bring it up for the rest of my life. It's just pretty simple. His name was pronounced cows. How and everybody you know, in did his he family. tell you his name? <clears throat> he did actually. Oh. Yes. Yes. Jeez. So in, in the late 18th, <laughs> was, was he levitating? <laughs> he was, he, he wrote a book called um, Cow's Checklist of Birds in North America. And one of those birds has a subspecies name that's cows named after him. And he has a footnote that says, here's how my family name is pronounced, C-O-W-Z. So he, in his own words, in his own publication, tells everybody how to pronounce his name. So there's really no, there's no question how it's supposed to be pronounced. There's a big question of how people choose to pronounce it. And they can choose to pronounce it any way they want, but they should recognize what's correct and what isn't. I don't know how you come back from that. Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> you come back to it like this. I mean, Elliot's like that. <laughs> you, come back, like, you come back with a sentence like this, me and Ross are going coos deer hunting this January. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> That reminds me of the white-tailed versus white-tail. Reminds me of one. Damn. So if your car doesn't start in the morning, are you someone that says, my damn car didn't start or my damned car mm. didn't start? My I've had this debate car. with several people. I fall into the latter. Like, you'll it, it was go damned. The, you'll put the D on there. It was damned. That's why it didn't start. Oh, I don't know. That. Mm. I'm going to switch. I will mm. switch that. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Like that there I go. <laughs> Spencer, hit us with your quick little fact, or not little, your little factoid, your little punt gun factoid what I, that I don't believe. Oh, but I, I kind of believe. Think, uh, I don't think Sean and I came to an agreement because I can't find anything definitive. The only thing I can find is on, you're not going to accept this, Wikipedia. 
No, 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 no. Listen, man. Uh-huh. No. <laughs> Listen. I'm not, I'm not, when you're, if you're at a, like an actual, if you're writing for a, a, a when you go through the fact check process at a mm-hmm. magazine, they won't accept Wikipedia. Right. But is there a is there a footnote like source at the bottom of that? Uh, yeah, but then I can't find anything within that source that backs up what they mm. say. Spencer's trying to tell me that in 1860 they had already banned the punt gun. I feel like it was a rolling ban that like some states were outlawing it, and then at one point it's like uh, everybody said no to it. Yeah. This sentence well, again, you're not going to accept it from Wikipedia. It says in the United States the practice depleted the pre- this practice. Depleted stocks of wild waterfowl by the 1860s, most states had banned the practice. The Lacey Act of 1900 banned the transport of wild game across state lines, and the practice of marking, market hunting was outlawed, outlawed by a series of federal laws in 1918. I don't feel like that satisfies. Yeah, no, God, that doesn't satisfy me. You got that because... trivia voice, dude? <laughs> yeah, but that, I'm just still not like, buying it, because like, I can sit here right here. There's a 1914 listing of the punt gun owners in Susquehanna Flats. They had so, like a, there's like a punt gun owners yeah. association. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> punt gun enthusiasts. You know, when I was uh, researching the, the punt gun, they still have like wildlife officers in India that will confiscate like two or three a year from people that are out killing waterfowl with them. Man, I think that we should, and I'll, I'll okay this right here and now. I think we got to get it. We got to start getting in on those sites where you can buy a punt gun and get a punt gun and start messing around with it out in a field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's, Let's do that. We, yeah, we should get a punt gun. Let's man. do that. And some real cheap, beat up old decoys off Facebook Marketplace or something. See how yeah. big a spread we can hit. I was thinking clay pigeons. I don't oh, know. Yeah, that'd, that'd work. I would love to get a punt gun and start having, become like a punt gun enthusiast. <laughs> Do you think your kids would be more into the fire or the punt gun? Oh, if we got a big ditch fire going. Mm-hmm. And then and then I said, <laughs> now, now we're going to number two. shoot the yeah. punt gun down into the fire. Yeah, we don't have to choose. <laughs> Uh, they would like, great. yeah, they would be very into that. I want in on this. This sounds awesome. <laughs> Ross, Ross, be shoving my kids out of the way. <laughs> my turn, my turn. Heisman. Yeah, we can, we can uh, get this punk gun like an LLC, get about 20 of us, right? And everyone pitches in mm. a couple hundred bucks and we got a punk gun all of a sudden. No, I just think that, well, I think that, that, that our company will just buy the punk gun. There you go. That's good. So can you start bidding on punk guns for us? <laughs> I, w- I will do some real research because I feel like you're being for real. Oh, I'm dead serious. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to put the mic down now and start typing. So uh, I, I thought Steve was joking about this lazy boy you're sitting in, Spencer, for months. It turns out he wasn't. So I would say just go for the If punt we gun had now. a punt gun, I would become a punt gun enthusiast. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's a great segue into um, another edition of Sean's Duck Report. Now, Sean, I got to warn you. You get to talking about sciencey stuff. Mm, yeah, you got old Heffelfinger sitting here. <laughs> That's fair. So normally, well, if someone talks about something sciency, a couple days later, I get an email from Heffelfinger <laughs> <laughs> being like, "Well, actually," so he's just going to be able to live do it. Well, and then, you can bet, Doug's already uh, typing. Out. I was going to yeah. say, "I'll be Googling." <laughs> I'm just Sean, Google Sean, has even, Sean hasn't even started. <laughs> Sean hasn't even started, and Doug's already typing shit in his phone. Well, I actually wanted to talk about two different waterfowl things because one is like a constant email thing we get or, you know, messages on Instagram, whatever else. Rice breast? Rice breast. First one this year. 
I mean, the first one that was so bad, it was unquestionably inedible during the youth duck season. Yeah, what do you mean? I mean, inedible because it messes with you? Because it's not inedible. Listen. Like mentally and emotionally? That's the conversation I want to have about this. Okay, it's this. If it was like a thing that was happening to me all the time, I'd get over it. Mm -hmm. Okay? I'm raising a family. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I pick my battles. Mm -hmm. The other night, we had ducks and duck hearts. I, uh, That's pretty impressive. Right? Well, I, I, what I do is I take um, bear fat or pork fat, and I simmer the duck hearts in the fat for a long time, just bloop, so bloop, they don't get too bloop, chewy. Bloop, bloop, bloop in the bubbles. Then I put them on a skewer and put them on a hot grill. Okay, mm-hmm. I make my kids eat them. Do they like them or do they object? No, they end up liking them. Good. But I'm like, eat that, then you can have the other stuff. Okay. Okay. Do they know what it is, Steve? Oh, yeah. Okay. He's All like, right. it's, got a, it's got a hole in it. So, yeah, that's where his blood comes in and out. <laughs> um, but if I don't want to do, like, I don't want to do the, the the I didn't want to serve that. Mm-hmm. There's been one, we, we believe in the, like, um, everybody's got it. We don't cook special stuff. Like, everybody eats what everybody eats. There's been one time we had something made out of, of older deer's liver, and my daughter's crying about it. She didn't like it. And um, I was like, I don't care. And then my wife <laughs> takes a bite, and my wife goes, Rosie, you don't need to eat that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it would just cause a lot of trouble if I had, because we were all looking at it, and if yeah. I served it, it would have set me back, and then like I would have lost credibility. So here's where, here's the point I bring up that I feel like doesn't ever get discussed. The only time I ever notice rice breast, personally, is if I've breasted a bird. But if you're plucking your birds, you're never looking past the skin. So you're probably this, eating this, this, a this, lot of rice-breasted birds. This is a, you're doing a microaggression. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You ever hunt youth? You ever hunt youth duck season? Yes, and I know you're not plucking them then. I, I, they're, they're, I, they got I, all the pin feathers. They got all the pin course, feathers, of course. And this, there's no fat, and the skin's too thin. My entire point is that the the discussion around the messages I get around like, should I eat a rice breasted bird? Mm-hmm. It's only because Can you tell you people breast- what we're talking about. No one knows so, what we're talking about. So rice breast is uh sarcocystis. It's pretty much cysts in the breasts of the duck that look like rice, hence the rice breast. Is it all pus or is it um is it pus or is it little worms? They're technically a cyst created by whatever the parasite is. That's, it's not actual worms. It's hmm. just a cyst created by the parasite. Anyway. It's a minor infection. Basically, oh, and right? it looks, I mean, it looks ridiculous. It gets, ext- yeah, it's gnarly. And for whatever reason, it seems like birds you shoot early in the year, you know, shovelers off the local shit ponds tend to be like the duck you find with it. They at look like maggots feels at like, first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's not pleasant to look at at all. If I give, if, if, uh, if I gave you a Pepsi challenge of the most rice-breasted duck on the planet mm. in a non, do you feel that you'd be able to pick out the rice breast? Oh, no, I don't, like, I don't know. You've been eating them? I have never not eaten them. 
So that would be yes. Why, yeah. Like why yeah, the weird dub, the double negative? Well, maybe, yeah, like, because because like it's a I've for never, me it's a it's never, well, it's a point for me is like that. I'm sure I've eaten dozens of rice breast birds when they're plucked. Yeah, but you so why not eat them when they're breasted? Because I feel like let me ask you yes no question. I turn them into tacos so you don't have to look at it. Have you ever found one so bad that you discarded it? I probably have when I was younger, okay. not anytime recently. Got you. So your your hypothesis is be, because you know, or probability-wise, you've probably ingested this several times without knowing it, and nothing Absolutely. bad mm. ostensibly happened to you that is perfectly fine. I mean, it's it's like unanimous that it's doesn't affect you doesn't hurt humans in any way no. it's just gross to look at it's when nasty you cook looking. it like let's just say you smoke a sarcocystic duck breast mm. or you you know grill it or you like can you actually look at the cooked meat and see that there is a difference and a is there a textural difference when you're you eating definitely it? see it but i haven't noticed it like texture wise but I've, you have a picture here that... That's an extreme case. That's an extreme case. That's what I, I had this, that's what we had this youth this season. Mm. One duck had it. Really? Now, Callahan mentioned to me that... He mentioned to me something to the effect of, I'm not surprised because it's been such a warm fall. Does that make any sense to you? I have no clue. I don't know enough about it. Yeah, I don't what either. What do you think, Jim? I don't either. I've never, I've never heard that relationship. Hmm. We'll give it. Go, go on. Are you, is that all you're going to say about that? that gonna, that's all I wanted to talk about. With that, was just raise that point. That, that nothing's going to happen to you. Yeah, it's just un, it's mm-hmm. unsightly. But there's no thing that says you're going to wind up with a deadly parasite. No, no. Yeah, jackrabbits in southern Arizona have have tapeworm larva, and that it's not the kind of tapeworm that can affect humans. So y- you can technically, as long as you cook it good, you can eat it. And and we do. If there's a few tapeworms here and there, we still keep all the meat. But sometimes you get one that's just loaded. Mm. And that one we let the coyotes have. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, um, I have a new doctor, the world's greatest doctor. Okay. Her name's Katie. Mm-hmm. Yanni's doctor too. I just oh, found out. Yeah. She's so tight lipped. <laughs> she is. She's so tight lipped. She didn't tell me she was Yanni's doctor. <laughs> well, I don't, I think there's some laws. Yeah. She about can. that. Yeah. Well, she sticks to him. <laughs> <laughs> I found out from Yanni it was his doctor. Cause I'm down there breaking a thing. I'm down there telling her about me and Yanni and the trichinosis situation. Mm. And she's not like, oh, yeah, that's my patient. He told me that, too. She played totally dumb. But then I was talking to Yanni, and he's like, that's my doctor. I told her about that. So That's impressive. Anyways, she's getting this whole thing rolling. To She's helping us pursue this biopsy. Oh, In-state. Gonna... In-state. Okay. Hmm. To get the deep Let's muscle you, yeah. biopsy in our biceps. To find those little larvas in there. I have some more info for you about that. Well, well I need to connect you with my uh, doctor. She'll probably play dumb with you. <laughs> yeah, because she is probably my doctor too. <laughs> is the is it a um is her last initial in the second half of the alphabet? I'm, Steve, I'm her pretty last. sure you yes. can say her name. Do it again. Oh, that's your doctor. Yeah, world's greatest doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, go on, Sean. Okay, so the 
like the waterfowl topic I wanted to really talk about today was is specific to this year, which is the crazy weather we've been having and how it affects waterfowl. Specifically, like um, two things, one being the drought that's been pervasive across the country, especially the West, um, and two, just how mild it's been. But first and foremost was last winter, well, last fall, winter, and into the spring was about as dry as you could ever ask for in the Dakotas and Saskatchewan, which is where most the continent's waterfowl nest um, prairie pothole region. North Dakota was down 80% on their pond counts in May. Are you serious? Yeah. 67% below the long-term average, which you can only imagine how many fewer ducks that leads You've to. You've got to be kidding me, man. 80% pond count down. Pond count meaning someone counting yes. baby ducks. Like, no, no, so, um, sorry, not the actual counting of ducks, but the physical ponds, like spots oh, for them to nest on. An 80% reduction in like Yeah, so if there was 100 pond ponds surface. last year, now there's 20 or whatever. No shit, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. So we don't know that that will correlate. I mean, we do. Obvious, obviously it's not good, but you don't know that that means necessarily an 80% reduction in ducks because there right. could be some buffering of some yeah. sort in there. But we know it. I mean, we it know there's good. the relationship of that it hurts the duck population. Sure, yeah. In addition to that, which... Um, luckily we have like long-term harvest data and like adaptive management, but we also like don't, we didn't have counts from Canada because of COVID. So we're kind of a little blind right now on like what the duck, duck population might be with this drought to go like a little more into how severe the drought was Bismarck, North Dakota recorded their third driest year on record only preceded by Dust Bowl years, which, I mean, that's that's pretty extreme. Well, anyway, what all this comes back to is, like, we know just based on the pond counts and the, the water situation that we have less ducks going into fall this year. We don't know exactly what that number looks like because we didn't get a waterfowl count, but we had less ducks going into the fall. Yep. And then in addition to that, we have like undeniable warming. We have just so much warmer falls. Last fall, November 2020, was the warmest November on record ever. Um, This November was the seventh warmest November on record in the United States. And it was also like the eighth driest. 2020 was the average, like averaged out to be the warmest November November on on record. Yeah. And so what this, like, what this eventually leads to is just this later shift in the waterfowl migration. And you have, and there's several factors that I'll discuss as I like keep coming on. Cause there's, it's a very complicated issue. It's beyond just weather. It's beyond just drought. It has to do with agriculture. It has to do with urbanization. Like there's so many factors, but one of them that this year is so undeniable is like, the weather, the climate has changed, and the ducks are moving south later. And there's a lot of frustrated people so far this season, for sure. It's been a hard duck season for a lot of people. You pointed out that Minnesota just had their um, first recorded December tornado. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talking about tornadoes in Minnesota, what was December 15th? 
ish. Yeah. Wild. Hmm. Yeah, I was in South Texas last week for my son's graduation. He got his PhD in wildlife. We went down there to see him <clears throat> walk. Shout out to Levi. 90 degrees for the commencement. <laughs> December 10th. And it just like leaves water, you know, the waterfowl hunters in the north, like the, the data shows that their duck hunting success doesn't necessarily get affected by weather changes because inevitably like hunters in North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, they already have the birds. The birds are nesting there or like they're, the birds never don't come that far south. They always at least get that far. But, um, there's quite a bit of data and, and like, uh, correlation of the, the lower the pond counts and the warmer the year, like just obviously, I mean, anecdotally, but also scientifically makes sense. The South struggles. They don't kill as many ducks. Didn't you last, wasn't last year one of the highest, um, I guess I would call it pond counts, but there was a lot of water in the Dakotas? As two years ago, and we're going through some just wild fluctuations right now. Flood, drought, flood, drought, and it's, because it was only, I I would say it was probably four or five years ago, we were at the highest duck count ever. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. And then now we're on a real slide. Highest duck count or highest pond highest count? Highest duck count. Oh, just five years. The ago. reason we don't have duck counts the last two years is is COVID. Hey, can I put in a, requ- in a request mm-hmm. for the next for Sean's yeah. for the next Sean's duck report or whenever sometime in the future? Yep. Can you do a duck report on age demographics? Oh, of duck hunters or no, of no, no, ducks? No, 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 no. I don't care about that. <laughs> of the ducks, ducks, man. Yeah, mm-hmm. age demographic of ducks, old ass ducks. We shot a duck, or not a duck, sorry, but you can throw this into it. A water, like age demographics on waterfowl. Okay. Uh, did you hear about when we called in a sandhill? We had a sandhill crane that mm-hmm. had, was banded 17 years prior in Fairbanks, Alaska. We killed it in Texas. Yeah, that's so crazy. It's Am I exaggerating? I think no, it was. No, 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 no. That's not exaggerating. I at think all. it was 17. Mm-hmm. When I was guiding snow goose hunts, we had an 18 year old snow goose that was banded as an adult. Yeah, this was banded as an mm-hmm. adult. And I, you know, it's funny. I had been to where it was banded. Really? Yeah. I like when that happens. Yeah. We, uh, we shot a duck in Oklahoma that was banded where I live in South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> what Went a- to Oklahoma <laughs> to kill a duck that was where we it were was from. Back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, any harvest data coming in on ducks from this year? Is it a low duck? Is it a low duck year? Is it a good duck year? It's it's a bad duck year. I mean, I haven't seen any actual harvest data, but I can't imagine it's going to be good. Was five years ago a good duck year? Yeah, we're on a we're just in general on a downhill trend of like overall hunter success anyway, and that's kind of what I want to uh, discuss in future duck reports is all the different factors that are affecting that really Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not just as simple as like there's less ducks and it's too warm it's it gets way more complicated than that when you start talking about like crop distribution and even stuff like um power plants and industrial plants and urbanization like all that is affecting but i'll I can't get all into it. <laughs> we'll be here for hours. Yeah. But there's there's a lot of factors leading to 
lower hunter success. On ducks. Mm -hmm. But then you look at like sandhill cranes, snow geese, geese. Yeah, like speckle bellies are booming right now. Speckle bellies are, I think, anecdotally, I think 20 years from now, we'll be looking at speckle bellies the same way we look at snow geese now of like just unbelievable population growth. Yeah. But ducks are not in the same, not in the same ballpark at all. Huh. And it really comes back to that prairie pothole region. Uh, I mean, that is it. It's up to 70% of the continent's nesting ducks. So if the Dakotas in Saskatchewan are in a drought, you just don't have ducks. Got it. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of folks will listen to what Sean just said and be like, I fucking told you this year sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not us. Mm -hmm. It's the ducks. There's a, like, there's a certain element to it for sure of that, like, it's just, um, it's cyclical, just like any population of animals. And ducks are probably even more so than a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. You can't change what the jet stream is doing or, you yeah. know, what rain does or what snow does. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because I feel like with big game animals, we have a tendency to blame it on our own behavior to some degree. No, we you don't. Know, predator management. Wolves. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Wolves agencies. in the DNR. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and with waterfowl, it's more of this mystique of like, I don't get it, but I'm not seeing as many ducks. I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's the blind I'm hunting in. I don't know if it's, you know, my buddy's calling, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it ain't happening this year and we can't blame it on ourselves as easily. So it becomes less, yeah, know, less clear. Well, and I think... um you know, we could end up with a snowy winter and by next spring be back into the, you know, back into the game, like have all the, all sorts of ponds. It's, that's all it is, you yep. know. Hmm. Guys just got to deal with it, get used to it, find ways to be successful anyway. Hunt speckle bellies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and just like be willing to adjust the conditions and go different places or like, you know, not sit on the same pond every day expecting that like, you know, that all of a sudden the ducks are just going to appear. Like sometimes you're just going to have to go out and search for those. Like, yeah, okay, there's going to be fewer ducks, but you still got to, just like anything, you got to go find them. Remember in the late 90s when everyone was, you know, all of a sudden you could hunt geese and like Mm -hmm. we're out getting like bit by mosquitoes hunting geese in the late summer. Mm -hmm. Is that still going on? Yeah. South Dakota, North Dakota still have an August goose season because then you get like in the in the east like that goose flyaway is kind of screwed right now yeah they're they're down to i think one a day in but the then Atlantic like golf flyway. course golf course geese in the midwest what's the difference between those two things like you could do that now or you can make that a sean that's that's a i think that comes back to the urbanization conversation that we got to have like they're they're like a winner yeah like to some level like well, of course canada geese have won with urbanization but Got also it. somewhat mallards, right? Maybe not population-wide, but like mallards have definitely adapted to urbanization way better than any other duck. Friends of mine in Fairbanks were saying that they've got mallards on the university, on the campus, mm-hmm. in Anchorage and Fairbanks. They got mallards that have found a way to overwinter. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and he said they just get fat. And lazy and overwinter in these sort of like populated areas mm-hmm. with bubblers and stuff, yep. you know? 
And he said, and then these ducks show up in the spring, migrators, and it's some like haggard male that's been like <laughs> starving to death, flying yep. back home. And he said, those big fat ones just come up and be like, I'll take it. I'll take her from here, boys. <laughs> <laughs> like they've just been biding their time, you know? Yeah. This is, this is definitely uh, like put a tab on this because we're going to keep talking about this. There's, there's some interesting studies and just conversations around the urbanization stuff. So we'll cover that another time for sure. Got it. Okay, Ross, you ready? Let's do it. I think so, yeah. So you run the program at First Light. You're a duck enthusiast. Yeah, I appreciate that. Earlier I was saying that Ross is a big-time duck hunter, and Ross contested to say he's a long-time duck hunter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at one point, uh, Steve and I and I think Dan had a conversation about the intersection of passion and talent and how sometimes there isn't said intersection I feel like that's my case. Like, I'm a passionate waterfowler. I don't know that I'm particularly talented at it, but uh, I've been doing it a long time. Definitely probably spent more time in the duck blind than any other pursuit that I have. Uh, so, spent a lot of time sitting. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> but First Light is coming out with a waterfowl line. Are you kind of like, in, the, in your head, like, yes, finally. Dude, yeah. So, it's a long, long time coming. I mean, we've been talking about it, as far as I know, for at least eight years um, wow, waterfowl has always been like the denominator in the office that we just haven't gone after. Uh, for even though like everybody does it, more people we always do this kind of nerdy math, but we definitely spend more time collectively waterfowling across the office than in any other individual pursuit. Mm-hmm. So it's always been there. I mean, shit, I met Cal uh, well before First Light. So back in the day, right, like when you used to go to your uh, waterfowl zone and we'd put in at the boat launch and you knew everybody there because people weren't doing it yet. And it was like a community and you knew you saw so-and-so's rig and you're like, oh, he's here and you knew where he hunted and stuff. So my buddy Robbie's out there and I motor up to him because I know what blind he's going to be in. And this was probably 2002. Um, And I, I motor up there and Robbie's sitting in the blind and he's got this kid with him with a big ass video camera. (laughs) <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to make some DVDs or something. And, and this is my friend, Ryan from Montana. He's out here filming. Hold on, Cal was hundred percent. And I remember this. <laughs> I can't remember like where my keys that. are right now, but I remember Cal had, you know, like the bomber hat on. And I mean, I don't know exactly how old Cal is. I don't think anybody does, but, uh, he was like born with that mustache, right? <laughs> yeah. Correct. Like, I think he was 12 and he had a pretty thick broom going there. Uh, no, I just remember this and, and, um, you know, I, I think I was, let's see, roughly 22. So Cal was approximately, you know, he's in high school was my guess or right around there. Uh, and that's how we met. Like, and then we right? didn't see each other for whatever, another eight years or something until I went to First Light. Um, and Cal was the only employee at that point. I was the second employee. So there's always been this like backstory. I actually used to waterfowl with Scott, one of the founders, and Kenton, the other founder, well before I was at First Light, before First Light was around. And then we started hiring people. And the cool thing about waterfowl is as we'd hire people from whether it was Intermountain West or Maryland, waterfowl is the denominator, right? Like you're not speaking the language of whitetail versus Western. Everybody waterfowled or goose hunted, duck hunted, whatever. Um, So point being, it's been in our blood for a long time. We've talked about it a long time. And yeah, to your question, I am definitely really excited to finally get there. Uh, I feel like we've been penciling it out and 
noodling on it for eight years, and we finally get to bring it to the table. So pretty excited. Tell people right now what Typha means. Oh, boy. That's going to be one of them ones where people are like, what? Yeah, Typha is a a great word. Yeah, it's the genus that uh, like cattail belongs to. Hmm. So all of that sort of marshy uh, foliage falls under that sort of cattle or under that uh, category or genus, I guess. Yeah. You buy that, that Finger? Mm-hmm. Yep. T- to yep. clarify, nice. like... Jim buys it. Yeah, I'll save me Google an email there. It's true, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Doug's, Doug's <laughs> app has... Phone it, his right his app has it going, bing! Yeah. <laughs> Bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. Um, well, to clarify, Typha's the name of our new waterfowl pattern. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, was, yeah I was getting there. Did okay. I leave that out? Yeah. yeah. Well, oh. it's all right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a valid question. Uh, but, yeah, it kind of encompasses that full marshy atmosphere that we developed this pattern to use specifically for. But yeah, so besides it being in our DNA, the other thing that we were looking at for the last eight years, we're like, man, what a lot of people don't know unless they happen to have tried it is that, you know, our our uh, foundation for our system is Merino. Merino for waterfowling is the best goddamn thing to ever happen it's to amazing. anyone. I mean, when you drop your motion decoy wing into the water and you got to go shoulder deep in there, and you pull your arm out, and you have the property of merino that's warm when wet, and then you go home, and maybe you know you're hanging out, and you forget to dry it. The fact that merino doesn't stink, it just all comes together, and then it's insulated sure, man, properties yeah. and all that. So that was kind of a no-brainer. Um, and then we've spent the last several years developing specific fabric packages for waterfowl, um, and then really dorking out on a lot of the features that would make our product um, smarter and more usable and more friendly so that you'd use it and you'd be like, man, I can't believe nobody's thought about this feature before now, mm-hmm. which to be fair and to be transparent, I feel like waterfowl has long been a forgotten category in particularly in apparel. I could say that probably across the board relative to let's say Western big game. I mean, you've seen so much innovation in there over the last 20 years and for a variety of reasons, a lot of it was driven from mountaineering technology that people would bother borrow and then apply to yeah that's a good point man yeah, yeah. And, and you saw that and you they, saw they, they always had like mountain hunting gear always had something to chase yeah which was exactly mountain, which was mountaineers exactly right <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was very easy for folks to say hey that's working really well in mountaineering let's apply that to hunting figure yeah. out how to put a pattern on it you know all that sort of stuff but for whatever reason probably by virtue of you know honestly waterfowl is a smaller market i think it was neglected for a really long time when, in fact, it's one of the most, like, from a durability standpoint, it's certainly one of the most demanding pursuits that we take place in. I mean, people view waders, let's be honest, as disposable. Like, if, if you can get, if you're, a, mm-hmm. if you're a hardcore waterfowler and you can get a year out of one without having to warranty it or repair it, you're pretty psyched. Yep. You just don't expect, waterfowls don't expect things to last. And we looked at that as, you know, like, I don't know, the market was, the manufacturers are neglecting that market. And we wanted to make stuff that was, like, Brick shithouse tough, mm-hmm. smart, and using the same level of innovation that we've seen in Western Big Game and Whitetail over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years. And you got to stay dry. Yes. Like, you yeah. know, that's such, it's, yeah. it seems so simple, but to have something that's light enough to functionally wear yeah. and not too bulky and thick to where you can actually still shoulder a shotgun and be functional while also like, you got to be dry. When would I, when, when does your average mug be able to go out and be like, oh, I can buy it? Well, the product will come to, we'll get inventory of it next summer in probably like June, July. 
type time and, and that's when we'll have it available for purchase. In the meantime, uh, we're going to start rolling stuff out, some previews and, and showing what the individual product looks like uh, between now and then and really get into, you know, all the stuff that we think makes it um, the best waterfowling product in the market. I don't want to. I don't want to mess your story up, but you also are stumbling upon the greatest ice fishing line of apparel. You're right, mm. and you did point that out <laughs> not too long ago. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, we didn't design that. These, with I was line. like, what? These, what you ought to be calling these is, uh, you know, <laughs> ice fishing. Yeah, Done. another well, neglected market. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I will. You, you, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that, like on the pattern front, that's probably the thing I'm like I was most excited about when I first got to start screwing around with this stuff was that over and over the problem I've had with products for for years is too dark like when you're out in the marsh and you look at guys from a distance you typically notice they're a black blob mm. like they are darker than like their you don't realize how light that fall dried right exactly tail and other vegetation is mm-hmm. and you know, you, that's a thing in waterfowl hunting is like cover up any black holes, right? And you're blind, like you want grass hanging over the top to cover that like black hole in the blind or even on a boat, like you don't want a dark motor on the back showing. So you go put a motor cover on it. Like that dark black blob, whether in a field or in a marsh is like always a problem. And it's always what the birds pick out. And usually camo is just too dark, and at least for the marsh environment, for a cornfield environment. Got it. Because everyone's always trying to create a pattern or a camo that like can ride the line, right? Of like, oh, you can wear this in the timber of Arkansas or the buckbrush in Missouri, or then a cornfield in South Dakota. It's like, well, those are very different. Yeah, I'm <laughs> those with are you. very different environments. And typha is light. It's like a light color. Some people would. Um, like maybe in the South might think it's too dark in their environment and they might be right. But as far as like, if you hunt anything grassy, anything marshy, anything agriculture at all, like it looks so good. And it's an area where it's just not a debatable point. Like it's indisputably benefit camel, like the right camel is indisputably beneficial when you're hunting ducks. It's like they see shit. If there's anything I noticed this year, like me and Giannis were on a hunt in nebraska and i was he was kind of like on the edge of the cattails a little tucked in but they were like pretty light thin cattails and i was out picking up a bird looking back at him 80 yards and i was like tickled pink that he was just not he was not dark he was the same you know he wasn't all blacked out i'm happy to hear that because over the last handful of years we probably went through 15 iterations and it kept getting lighter and lighter. Hmm. You know, we'd have people, folks like Sean, and we'd have guides and all this stuff, and we'd secretly show it to them, and they're like, lighter, lighter, lighter. And it landed where it did with that recognition that I think people have a tendency, to Sean's point, to try and find a happy medium. And with waterfowl, that doesn't work. I mean, you've got to be pretty specific. I think out of all of our pursuits, arguably, waterfowl and turkey are probably the most discriminant. And so mm-hmm. we really tried to make something that was uh, intentionally specific to this environment as opposed to something that could operate in a multitude of of environments got you all right so this has you titillated uh 
Go to TheMeatEater.com slash waterfowl and sign up and you stay abreast of uh, all things waterfowl related at Meat Eater. Again, MeatEater.com slash waterfowl. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50 and it has airflow. So you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20-plus years. Deck is a game-changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Uh, here's the thing Corinne and I were fixing to talk about, but we're gonna, I'm just going to do it real quick. Mm-hmm. The spring bear hunt in Washington. We've covered this. Everybody in the planet is talking about this. Yeah, I don't know. 
Yeah, no, everyone. I mean, <laughs> North Korea is kind of a black people. hole, dude. Like, I don't really know coming out what's coming out of North Korea on this, but most people in the world are talking about this. Mm-hmm. Washington, their their spring black bear season sort of like on hold. And it came down to this commission boat. And what, you know, when you think of a fish and game commission, you think of a fish and game commission as being like people who are like predisposed to be supportive of hunting and supportive of use of natural, responsible use of natural resources. Washington ain't okay. It's like they've got their governor, and you know, I don't know, they've had a lot of like very, very left wing governors for a very long time that have have packed the commission full of people who not only are antagonistic, they got people on the commission, not only antagonistic to hunting, but like outspoken criticisms of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Mm. I mean, they had a freaking zookeeper on there who just resigned. Like a zoo. Like when I think of a (laughs) fish and game commissioner, the last thing that pops in my mind is a zookeeper. He's like, well, what we like to do is we keep them in a little cage. Put them in a cage, right? (laughs) Uh, That way nothing bad can happen to them. Um, this guy, uh, resigned, but here's what happened in Washington. I'm trying to do this as quickly as possible. They're supposed to have nine commissioners like the Supreme court. Why do you have nine Supreme court justices? Yeah. So in case they nine. don't agree. Yeah, right. They all vote. And then it just so happens that you're going to have like, uh, the right way. They got eight. The, I don't know. The governor won't appoint the ninth one. The, the ninth one's supposed to come from the East part of the state. People in the East part of the Eastern part of Washington tend to be hunt fish friendly. Mm-hmm. Right. More culturally yeah. like that. People from the West part of the state tend to tend to be, I'm speaking g- tremendous generalizations here. There's a greater likelihood they're going to be antagonistic to like hunting and yep. fishing. The, right? the, uh, the, the Cascade mountain range kind of is, yeah. is split there. Uh, they haven't gotten their commissioners. So they got these eight people. They get the, it comes to a vote whether to have the spring bear season, and it falls a four to four vote. And instead of it being a tie, and that means the bear hunt goes on for whatever reason, it's a tie, but the bear hunt doesn't go on. Another commissioner resigns. He resigns because he he's like in the commissioner doghouse somehow, the zookeeper. Um, he uh, so now they got seven. Now they got seven commissioners. They got to get all the commissioners appointed. And then they got to rehash this thing out. The tricky part is the fish and game agency, when the biologists from the fish and game agency come forward, they're like, bears are doing great in Washington. Um, very strong population. We recommend having the limited draw bear hunt as usual. That was their recommendation from a biological perspective. And some of these commissioners are like, it's social, not biological. There's like a social antagonism to this. Yeah. And that's the argument. They're not even debating anymore, like whether it's a sustainable resource. Right. Uh, oddly, no, I shouldn't say odd. Fortuitously, there's a thing where you can let the, the where they like invite input. Washington's Fish and Game Commission invites input. You're not being like a weird internet troll. Like they invite input. There's a thing called contact the Fish and Wildlife Commission. Go to my Instagram, scroll back to December 20, and you'll see a picture of me doing a grip and grin with a bear. In there, there's like a link, and it's a link to how you give the old what for to the commission. It's a fill, it's a form you fill out. And they're like sensitive. They, they look at the form. They're sensitive. They want to hear from people. So if you like live, particularly if you live in Washington, if you hunt Washington, 
Um, let them know how you're feeling about this. They got a form for you. So like going to like my like bio, go to like at Steven Ranella, scroll back to you see a dead bear, go to the link in bio and then fill out a thing, letting the commission know where your head's at on the bear hunt. Think about all that, Doug. I think that um, it's interesting that we have sort of the opposite, um, at least politically, situation in Wisconsin and that we have a natural resources board that's also appointed by the governor. But we have one of the um, board members whose term ended in April of last year who has refused to leave the board until the Senate confirms his replacement, which, of course, the governor put in, uh, nominated right away. And it's a – he was appointed by our previous governor who happened to be a Republican and our current governor is a Democrat and our Senate is controlled by the Republicans. So they're just – essentially this guy says, well, I'm not leaving the board until Hmm. there's a – until the new nominee is um, confirmed. But then they won't confirm him. And they won't confirm him. So we have this (laughs) squatter (laughs) – uh, it, it's. I mean, and it has has a huge effect. Do you think these guys are all talking together to make a plan? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, Durkin has written about it extensively, um, and it is affecting. Um, well, our wolf management. Um, it's affecting our deer management, um, and it's just to me, it's it, in both of these cases, it's. Uh, it's unsettling that politics are playing such a heavy role in how our natural resources are managed. You're talking about the North American model of conservation. Science-based management um, in Wisconsin um, is also being uh, ignored, but it's being ignored by the other side because there's a contingent who wants to have, you know, early, let's have wolf, wolf hunts early and often, and the DNR is saying a different uh, thing about wolves. Not that we shouldn't have a wolf hunt, not that we shouldn't be managing or anything like that, but, um, but, but that we, we need to, to have a, a better plan. And, and you know, this, uh, a law was passed, again, by the legislature and signed by the previous governor that says if, there's a, if wolf hunting is allowed, we need to have a wolf hunt during this period of time. So last year we rushed one, and I think you guys talked about the shit show that our wolf hunt became. And it was because of this rushing um, forward. Um, I don't have the answer for it. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not in wolf country, and I, I don't apply for a wolf tag just because it's not something that I'm um, uh, particularly interested in. Uh, hunting, but I certainly agree that they should be hunted um, and managed. But how that's done is so important. And um, I'm running, quite honestly, as we talk about chronic wasting disease and, and deer management, we run into the same thing there. So it's interesting that we have the same problem in two states, but they seem to be coming from different political standpoints. Yeah. Well, and that's, what, that's why I, that's why I'm a proponent of creating a third political party. Uh, well, I'm with you. When are when are we going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> right now, <laughs> that's happening. Yeah. yeah, I think it's just I think we just rehashed Roosevelt's uh, bull moose party. I like it. I like it a lot. That's <sighs> a good idea. Halflinger, take this one on for me, Jim. Which is that? The I just call you Halflinger so people know what I'm talking about because you have an unusual last name. That's true. But Jim Halflinger, take this one on for me. Uh, the theory that this is a fan favorite. 
Rattlesnakes don't rattle anymore because people killed all the ones that rattle. Yeah, that's a, that's a common thing. People see you hear that? General, no, no. You never heard that? I mean, I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you've heard yeah. the theory. Yeah. Okay. I've yeah. heard it, yeah. Yeah. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But... Cal, Cal, float, <laughs> Cal floated this one, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yep. It was inspired by his dog getting, yeah. like, about killed by a rattlesnake. Right. They bit it at the base of the ear. I actually had, I got a brand new little yellow lab puppy, and we had a run-in with a venomous creature. About two days after she was home, as an eight-week-old puppy, she was mouthing something. <clears throat> and I came out, and I said, "What's drop it. What do you got there? And she flicks off of her tongue a black widow, a big black widow spider. Huh. Plops out on the ground. And it wasn't moving, but it was fresh. She had picked it up and killed it. Did it and get her? No. We washed her, and somehow she did not get bit. So <laughs> Yellow Lab seemed to have a propensity to get into venomous creatures. But but we did talk about the – you talked about the, the snake selection thing about killing, rattling rattlesnakes. But we can just recap it. Basically, in order for something like that – you're talking about forcing evolution, kind of an artificial evolution where you select these animals that – have a higher propensity to rat- rattle, animals that are quick to rattle, a little more sensitive to rattle. And so you, first of all, have to have snakes, have to have that being genetically programmed. So you have to have some snakes that they get this gene from their parents that they're a little more sensitive to rattle. You have to have that kind of genetic connection or you can't make any kind of genetic changes by selecting some or not selecting others. And so we don't really know whether there's some genetic sensitivity to rattle gene or not. But even if we assume there is, then you've got to have people out there affecting a, a majority of the population, taking a high proportion, a disproportionate number of these animals that are, that are more sensitive to rattle when something comes near them. So you've got to have the selection to select those out disproportionately. And you've got over the top of this, you've got all of these other environmental factors that have something to do, have a lot to do with whether rattlesnake rattles or not. You know, what's the ambient temperature? If it's really cold, they're probably not going to rattle. If it's, if it's really warm, they'll be a little quicker to rattle. Maybe how, how close you got to them, how big and imposing you look. Maybe this rattlesnake got almost stepped on by a cow three times in the week and he's just pissed off because here's someone else walking at him. Mm-hmm. You know, what's your trajectory towards him? Whether he feels like he's well hidden. All of that stuff has a lot to do with how threatened the snake feels and whether it's going to rattle or not. And some idea that it, it has some genetic component from its parents about whether it's sensitive to rattle or not. Um, just doesn't make a lot of sense. There's too many other environmental factors that are coming into play for any kind of wide-scale selection to actually change how quickly rattlesnakes rattle in the wild. One thing you pointed out, too, and I think I mentioned this, is um, when you look at people who do large-scale rattlesnake killing, they're not walking around listening for rattles. Yeah, they're not walking around and then some really sensitive rattlesnake rattles and then they go kill that. So that's what you would need for that kind of selection. They're going in and, and going into dens and they're, they're doing all kinds of other sometimes destructive things to get rattlesnakes out. But it has nothing to do with how sensitive that snake is to rattle or not. So you can't, you can't exert that kind of selection even in those really intensive rattlesnake roundup kind of situations. So next time someone says that to you, say, shut up. <laughs> yeah. That's what I should have just said yeah. to Cal. As a public biologist, that's generally what I use on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to hit a bunch of, uh, we're going to get a bunch of deer stuff with, uh, with with Jim and Doug. And I'll point out that, you know, Jim's from Arizona, Doug's from Wisconsin, um, but they both are like very on top of the, the deer situation. So there's, these two aren't like uh, coming from, they're not like, they don't work together, different necks of the woods, all that kind of stuff. But in my mind, 
I was bracket. I wanted them to come on together because they're the people that I email with the most about deer and often quite different things about deer, but we're going to cover a little ground. Who wants to, oh, let, let me hit you with this one. Cause we're going to talk about COVID real. I don't want to spend a ton of time on COVID and deer. All this stuff about, I want to get your opinion on it. Oh, I have one. A lot of stuff about deer and COVID. <laughs> oh my. It, it, to me, it just seems like such a, I don't know. Okay. How much on a sliding scale of one to 10, each of you, Jim and Doug, on a sliding scale of one to 10, how much do you agree with this statement? The deer COVID thing, this is me talking. The deer COVID thing is a non-issue. What is 10? What is one and 10 on the scale? One is um, strong disagreement. 10 is strong agreement. I would probably fall in the seven. Hmm. Doug? I'm confused as to what the scale is again. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a you double strongly, negative. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm guessing Jim and I agree about this. I say the COVID deer thing, I feel like the COVID deer thing is a non-issue. Strongly disagree is a one. Strongly agree is a 10. Is that what you, the way you went on yeah, it? Yeah, I went, I went closer to 10. I mostly agree with that. You I went think to seven. I think it's something that's just being that's being blown out because it's kind of a popular thing that gets a lot of clicks, clickbait. But I but there is there is an element that we should not completely dismiss it. That's right. That's right. And that's yeah. So it's hard for me to put a. So I'll go with like a five because it's really? non-committal, right? Oh my god, you guys um, are like you guys are like deer COVID <laughs> tweakers. So, <laughs> here, so and here's why, and here's why. Um, at least from what I've learned and. Jim and I have some um, folks that we talk to in common about it. And it, well, so you guys have some overlap. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We know some of the same people talking to some of the same wildlife people. Yeah. Um, that it is a reservoir. And if the, one of the things that it, it, it does is that it sort of tells me that, uh, and maybe tells or the conclusion that I came to in talking with various people is that's, so it's there. And so COVID, um, like chronic wasting disease, is something that we're going to have to uh, live with, understand. But, it, but I think they found it in 70 animal species. I don't know if it's that many. So, do you say 70? I thought, I was like, did I, I thought I read the other day. Wait, pretty... somebody Google that shit. I know. Well, Doug's talking. He can't talk to <laughs> well, yeah. Sean, that's why how, how many animal species have they found COVID in? I mean, tigers, lions, minks, um, bogs. And here's my take on it. Dear. I'm going to tell you this. And I want to, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not a health professional. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I just think that it's like, I hesitate to even say this because people get in all kinds of trouble for saying stuff like this. I don't think we're getting out of this one. I think it's the new norm. I think it's the new norm. So let me go on. There I a agree. funeral director. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there, I agree. I, I do think it is, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's another example of zoonic disease that we have to pay attention to. But, um, you know, it's sort of like um, with COVID, I mean, we were, you know, as uh, we were flushing the toilets with our feet and all this other stuff. And I mean, you just have to, after a while, it's like, okay, I want to get on with my life. Uh, thanks for the information. I will take the mm -hmm. precautions that I think are necessary. Um, I'll talk to professionals about it and make my decisions from there, but I'm getting out of my life. Yeah. Yeah. What worries, uh, what worries the wildlife health professionals is that <clears throat> mink, 
domestic mink caught it from their keepers, from humans. Sure. So mink caught it from humans. Um, there's evidence that the virus circulated for a couple months in the mink population, mutated a little bit like it does. And there was a human that had COVID-19 and it had one of the strains that had mutated in the mink population and it had infected the human and the human got COVID. So it's, so some people are worried that with a huge reservoir like deer, it could mutate into such a form that would be no more virulent if it went back into humans. Now, there's no evidence that COVID has ever jumped from deer back into humans. And there's at no all. evidence that a deer has ever been phased by it. There's no evidence that deer has ever had. That's one thing that's important too. The virus is 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 called SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. COVID-19 is the disease, and SARS-CoV-2 is the virus. So deer have been shown to have been exposed to the virus and they've elevated antibodies showing they're exposed to it. No deer has ever been documented to actually have any kind of sickness, to actually have the COVID-19 sickness. I feel like I'm being a little glib, so I want to I articulate my perspective a little bit more thoroughly. Uh, I don't think we're, I, I don't think we're going to defeat COVID. I don't think we're going to constrain it. I don't think we're going to limit any of the spreads of any of the variants. I think that it's going to be, we're going to have new variants coming out of the human population all the time. In a couple of years, I think we're going to look at a lot of the stuff we did and we'll be like, oh, yeah, maybe we delayed something, but probably not. Or maybe, maybe we delayed something that's just the reality now and it gave us a minute to get boned up on medications and stuff. But it's circulating in a bunch of animals. It's circulating in a bunch of people across five or what, what six continents. Um, I don't think that it's like, ah, shit, now deer got it. This will never end. Like I just, I, I, I view it's like a, I feel it's a non-factor. But we got a nice letter from a funeral director, <laughs> <laughs> and he was pointing out. To, he's like, he's like, hey, 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 if you hunt deer, listen, I've been dealing. So there's like a lot of information out there for people that are deer hunting. Now they're like, when you go, when you go to gut a deer, you gotta have your latex gloves, you gotta have a knife. Well, now they're like, yeah, you gotta have your COVID mask. This guy wrote in and says, listen, I've been dealing with COVID deceased people. And here's what we do, and we have a hundred success rate in staying healthy. And he, he admits processing a deer is not the same as processing a human, <laughs> <laughs> but these tips could still be used. He suggests this: when butchering in the field, I don't, I don't think they use that word in the funeral. <laughs> when butchering in the field, when my father died, my father died late at night, and um, I was the last person. I watched him take his last breath, and I remember. The funeral people quickly showed up and they showed up um, in their suits and the long black wool coats and they were there fast. Same. Yeah. Yeah. When my dad died, it was very, very similar. I was like, dang, you guys got here quick, dressed up like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like laying in bed with that stuff on. Uh, <laughs> what was I getting at? Oh, move to it. He says, Here's the t- here's what morticians are doing around COVID deceased. When butchering in the field, move to an open area with lots of air circulation. Stand upwind of the deer. Do not compress the chest of the animal when rolling the animal over. Stand away from the head. Tape the mouth closed and plug the nostrils. Starts to paint a picture, don't it? Mm-hmm. Always wear gloves and a mask. Here's a tip. When removing the lungs, do not squeeze. Bury them once removed. After field dressing is complete, place the deer in cold, isolated storage for 48 hours before continuing on. 
I've had no experience consuming an animal of this state. That's good to hear. (laughs) (laughs) I would consult further experts on this topic. So there you have it. From a real pro. Love it. I have Here's to, another, can I give you another? Oh, go ahead, Doug. I was just going to say, I got to thank this guy for writing this and sending this in. <laughs> because it's like, how are you going to make this shit sound interesting, man? And that does. It really does. Oh, listen, man. We got like the best audience in the world. Yeah. We get great, great photos, great feedback. The Someone other, for, oh, go ahead. The go other ahead. thing, I, thank you. The other thing I would say is, um, as a lot of folks know, I have a um, CWD testing kiosk on our farm where people drop off. But um, they got carried away by yeah. a tornado. <laughs> they got tipped over by the tornado last <laughs> night. December Didn't get carried storm. away. It's only a few yards down the field, but... Doug's out of town. His wife sent a picture of his upside-down kiosk off. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I leave and shit happens. Um, uh, and in our kiosk, um, I opened up, uh, I have to, as I have to, open up bags and make sure the paperwork's right and stuff. And several of the deer, uh, they all came from the same place. The the uh, mouths were taped shut on them. Is that right? I, and I was like, well, that's interesting. Must have been this but guy's I hadn't, place. I hadn't, I hadn't read um, that as a, a hmm. recommendation, and I didn't notice that there was anything plugging the nostrils. But they did have notes on the, like, this is Sean's buck or, you know, Joe's doe or whatever. So maybe that was why they did it. I know the guy, so I'm going to have to ask him about it. I'm only uh, mentioning this. Somehow my wife has these little snowmen. Christmas ornaments that are made out of tampons. Cool. Come on. So my boys are like, what is this? <laughs> it sounds like a Corinne art, art project. Yeah. <laughs> so my wife's like, hey. you know, my wife gives them the full, gives my boys the full rundown, you know, for like what that's all about. And then uh, either way, that'd be a great nostril plug. Oh. Perfect size, right? Creative mind, Steve. Maybe yeah. a little big for well, some people. Folks. I mean, people not... in combat carry those. People in combat carry tampons a lot for bullet bullet wounds. Is like that right? Pass, yeah. pass through bullet wounds through an arm and they'll shove a tampon through it. Yeah, and if the pandemic ends, make uh, snowman out of them. That's like a, snowman it's a thing in wrestling. Is like wrestlers go get bloody noses and shove a tampon up there. Remember nose. the movie Strange Brew? He gets a bloody nose in court and the bailiff gives him a bullet to plug his nose with. <laughs> <laughs> but then someone cracks a joke and the bullet flies out and goes off. It's a good movie. Uh, here, here, a listener wrote in about this. This guy's kind of licking his lips at this whole COVID thing because he's like, man, if deer lose their sense of smell. Oh, good oh yeah. hunting. Mm-hmm. It's going to your gonna change the whole game, man. <laughs> going to change the whole game. That's a good point. All right, PFAs in deer. What the hell is a PFA? PFA, this is an emerging thing that, that I didn't know much about until I started looking into it, but they're just chemicals that don't degrade. They kind of accumulate in the environment. Forever chemicals, right? For, they that's, call them that's forever like the chemicals. That's like the little, the little, the little yep. sort of like public. I don't know what the hell. What the hell? How would I describe it? It's kind of the the gnome du jour. That's not right. That was a, a cutesy, a cutesy name. A cutesy name. Yeah, because yeah. something you find in the media all the time because they like to pick those. But they came around the 1950s and they put them in flame retardant stuff and water um, water resistant um, chemicals, all kinds of plastics. Probably Clark Griswold's uh, non nutritive Cereal varnish, <laughs> probably, and those kind of things. But it's ubiquitous in the environment, and, and now they're starting to find out that they don't degrade, and so they're they're accumulating in tissues, they're accumulating, you can detect, detect it in blood. And so we had we had the one report in Maine this year of uh, the local municipality advising people not to eat deer from this one local specific And that area. was coming from a local municipality. Yeah, not to eat deer either. And so, um, so we... Um, Brian Richards sent me a link from a year ago that was in Marinette, Mich- not Marinette, Michigan, Marinette, Wisconsin, right on, on mm-hmm. the side. 
Um, and that was a year ago and, and they were, they were advising people not to eat the livers of deer. So they were saying that in the heart tissue and the muscle tissue, um, the levels were undetectable or very low and not a problem. Mm-hmm. But in the livers, because the, the livers and the kidneys are organs that, that filter the blood and they filter toxic toxins out of the blood. And so it was accumulating in the liver and they're telling people not to eat the liver. So what were they seeing? Do you know, because a handful of people from Maine sent us this, 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 this warning that came out. What were they looking at? Do you know, like, what were they seeing specifically? Were they seeing, were they actually seeing like really elevated counts in venison? That I don't, I don't know the theoretical. Specifics. Yeah, I don't know the specifics whether they, like like a year previous in Wisconsin where they tested heart tissue, muscle tissue, and liver tissue and, and found that there were different levels. In the main situation, I don't know what they tested and, and when, what was sparking their concern, whether it was just in the blood or in muscles. Do you feel that, uh, oh, you got something to say, Doug? But the difference is in Maine, they're saying don't eat the meat, don't eat the deer don't at all. Deer. Out of a very specific zone. A very specific area. In mm-hmm. Wisconsin, it was... Liver and just liver. heart, and, yeah, and just liver. Yeah. And they actually, they specifically said, "Don't worry about eating heart tissue and muscle tissue in Wisconsin." Oh, they did. In that, mm-hmm. I clarified earlier that I'm not a healthcare professional. <laughs> yeah, nor am I. I would like to clarify that too. Yeah. I would. I have a way that I assess things, and I go like, "Would I really die from this? Like, will this be the thing I die from?" And this is not to advise anyone, but I just right. but in that situation, I'd probably be like, "Man." Am I really going to, like, is this going to be the thing that kills me, eating this deer? And I'd be like, in my mind, I would be like, that's not going to do it. Yeah. Those, it's going to be heart disease. <laughs> those <laughs> Or lung cancer. PFAs, and I've heard them called PFAS. I don't know if that's what the cool kids use or if that's just what one person was using incorrectly. But they've been linked to higher cholesterol. They've been linked to uh, kidney, testicular cancer, been linked to lower birth weight changes in liver enzymes, um, high blood pressure. And, a, and in children, a decreased reaction to vaccinations in getting their antibody levels up. So there's some medical connections with um, having these high levels of, of that in the blood. Most of those studies, though, were done in areas that where the people had really high levels, not just kind of baseline levels. But also the CDC and some other sources say 95 to 98 percent of people in the United States have measurable PFAS levels Out of the gate. in their blood. But, Just an environmental level. But if you look at this area in Maine, are they advising don't eat don't eat vegetables from vegetable gardens in this area? Are they advising, or does that not work that way? Are they advising don't eat livestock products from this area? I haven't heard that, but yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure, but um, I know this specific area in Maine. Um, it was Fairfield was once used in a pulp paper manufacturing. Uh, and released into the Kennebec yep, River. Yep, and the the bio waste was spread on farm fields for years. So uh, I don't, I haven't seen anything else to, um, I guess, prove what this person has said. But he said that the kind of word on the street is that local dairy farms oh, are having their, I'm their stocks right killed now. as well. Wow, man! This one of the guys that rode, and he says, "Man, their family's been hunting." Uh, he said his. For 40 years, they've been hunting a property smack dab in the middle of this zone. And if you look at a, like a county map, it's falls in Fairfield. He's wondering, is it really safe to eat? Hate to give it. Yeah, I don't want to give advice, man. But, you know, I remember one time I had a garden and I just for the, I wanted to, I sent a soil sample into a, you know, the local, like, uh, you know, you have the land grant universities that have like an ag extension thing. And they came back with uh, very high elevated levels of lead. 
in the garden soil, right? And you're like really high. I remember what it was like 13x what's high or something mm. already. And um, I pondered that for a day or two, and then. Went on garden. <laughs> is that from you? Is that from you shooting raccoons in the garden? You just deposited some lead in the soil. No, you know what? And I was curious how that happened, and uh, and I'd spoke to a couple people, and they're saying that um, that they that the, the the thing they were looking at most there was the years of leaded gasoline. Mm-hmm. Oh. So being in a you know being in an area just close proximity to where there was a lot of a, a lot of combustion of leaded gas. Yep. And, uh, That's where a fall, lot of the falls out. Of, yeah, falls out of that exhaust and yep. in close proximity. So you exhaust. might have an area where I don't know, man, or you like idled a tractor. You know, people were idling their tractor for seventy years outside the whatever barn. Mm-hmm. You could have like uh, from the years of leaded gas. But like I said, man, it like shook me up, and I just kind of went on. The <laughs> <laughs> my knee jerk reaction is to not worry about the PFAS, but but. Disease professionals will tell you if if your municipality is issuing a, a don't eat kind of advisory, you probably would be smart to follow yeah, that. But the, in, where my road. brain goes with that is like the every boat ramp having a mercury advisory. You know, like that's commonplace everywhere is mercury advisories mm-hmm. don't eat too much fish. But I don't personally know anyone that's ever ran into mercury poisoning problems. Can I tell you a funny story about mm-hmm. that? Go ahead, Doug. You got something to say though? Uh, yeah, the, the thing that concerns me and if someone who's in that area would, uh, write in, I, I'd, I'd like to follow up this being a kid who grew up with a dairy farm. He said that the word is the local dairy farmers have killed off their stock as well. And my question is, one, did that happen? Our questions are, one, did that happen? And two, if so, why? Because in, um, in the livestock world, if there is a disease issue, and there are a handful of them, that the uh, the Department of Agriculture requires you to destroy your herd. And I'm wondering if this was something that was required or if they're just saying, well, this is a mess. Or I mean, I can't it, imagine. It, like, we don't even know if it's true or not. Well, right. That's what I'm asking. Is it true? If so, you know. So Skepticism is the chastity of the intellect. Is, I, right. I'm with you. Uh, you didn't tell that you're a mercury story. Oh, so my dad, uh, one of my dad's main fishing buddies when I was a kid is this dude, Ron, and Ron was also a commercial bait fisherman. So he made his living catching live bait and selling live. He had his own bait shop, but then he distributed live bait to other bait shops. And the dude fished all the time and lived off fish, lived off freshwater fish. And they were scouring around. The University of Michigan was scouring around for old dudes like him that had been eating fish their whole life out of the Great Lakes. And they would send him, and he would periodically go down to University of Michigan to do these mercury tests. And part of it would be these memory quizzes. And they'd say to him like, okay, you got to go to the grocery store and get, you know, milk, eggs, bread, black pepper, olive oil, and lettuce. And then he'd have to sit there for a minute and they'd, they'd say, uh, what do you got to get at the grocery store? And in describing these tests to me, he said to me, uh, man, I wouldn't have been able to remember that if I never ate fish at all. <laughs> uh, we had another thing, cadmium and liver. I don't know. Like, I'm not downplaying cadmium and liver, but I don't know. I'm just. You guys want to talk more about stuff that's hiding in deer? Not really. I mean, cadmium can cause some some health issues. Okay. It's, um, it's probably a local. I mean, it's, it's probably a local thing and. You could probably find a lot of these little situations where there's some kind of contamination in, 
it gets concentrated in the liver. New Hampshire Fishing Game advises against eating deer liver because of PFAS, same thing we just talked about, and cadmium. Whew. All right, here's another disease, and we've covered this a little bit, but I just want to get uh, get a little... Um, I got a question for each of you around EHD. Um, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, EHD, seems to be like, I've never heard any suggestion that there's any effect on humans, hmm. but it's no. damn effective on deer. And uh, you, you can have an EHD outbreak that you, you'll, you'll commonly hear of 50, 75% of a deer herd getting carried off by EHD. Uh, we had had a, we, we were having a discussion about EHD recently and someone mentioned that it's, that it's um, always fatal to deer and, and got some feedback. That that's in fact, not the case. So go right. ahead and uh, talk about that. Yeah. They, they may have been I'm thinking about CWD, which we talk about as always fatal, but EHD actually a large percentage of the deer population survives EHD every year. Even when you get those big die-offs like that, but the ones that survive get antibody levels and that makes them immune to it for a year or two. So you generally don't get EHD die-offs in consecutive years. You'll get a, you'll get it like, a, especially a dry summer, a real drought summer, and you'll get a really bad EHD year and you'll, ha- you'll lose a lot of them in late summer. And then the next year, all the ones that survive have antibody levels. And so the next year you won't have an EHD problem no matter what, because they're all pretty well protected with, with the immunity to that. Here's a, this, this seems like a paradox. Maybe you can explain this to me. EHD, this isn't the paradox, but this, I'll get to the paradox in a minute. Like EHD is spread from deer to deer by a biting midge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like a bite, just same way you might get, humans might get malaria, right? Like mm-hmm. mosquito goes to one person and they move yeah. an infectious disease. Not from, animal to animal. But. From that person to the next. <clears throat> Why is drought bad? It seems like a wet year would make more midge because it's like an aquatic yep. thing. Like a wet year would make more midges out on the landscape. And then some people say, well, it's because it concentrates deer. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. That's what I've always heard. It's the concentration. You have you you have fewer water sources. You probably have fewer midges, but you have all of the deer and all of the midges all in the same location. And you can get that circulation, that concentration. Okay. Now, what, what I had always heard is that the like real enemy. It's trivia pursuit guy. Yeah. <laughs> the real enemy of deer hunters when it comes to EHD is if you have a very wet year followed by a very dry year because what really like gives those midges a home and, and boosts their populations and makes whitetail come in contact with them is long mud lines. So if you have like a super wet spring or a super wet 2011 and then a super dry summer or a super dry 2012 – that's when you get these long mud lines uh, where you get a lot of those biting midges at. Hmm. Yeah, they, we found in Arizona, actually, they've documented that those little midges, Chelicoides varipennis, can actually reproduce in the wetness of cactus. Mm. Oh. A little bit of moisture like that. Oh, shit. So All right, for, Doug, let me hit you with this one. Oh, go ahead. I, I have a question for Jim, and that is, um, is it, it seems as though EHD has been more of a mm, southern Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, issue why, and, but and now it's 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 more in the gr- n- northern Great Plains. Yeah, recently. yeah. Well, and I mean it's reported um, anecdotally by hunters in Wisconsin, but mm. um, uh, but 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 why is that? Why is there that cutoff? Just uh, I mean with the with the midge. I think it's a, I think it's a climate factor with uh, with midges and just where midge populations are, or those kind of midge populations are, and you get too far north, and you just don't have those kind of vector populations in there. They did, um, Mississippi State University one time brought deer from Michigan 
down to Mississippi, and they actually brought Mississippi deer and put in the pens in Michigan, and they found that those northern deer brought down to Mississippi had a very high mortality rate from from EHD. No shit, really. Because northern deer didn't have antibodies or previous exposure at least to those strains. And there's two different types of EHD, and there's about seven different serotypes of blue tongue virus, which is another closely related hemorrhagic disease. But So when people use blue tongue and EHD synonymously, that's not correct. That's not correct. They're different diseases. They just have kind of the same clinical symptoms. They're both hemorrhagic diseases. Are they both spread by midges? Yes. Okay. And and the blue tongue is normally kind of a sheep pronghorn antelope, or should I just say antelope? We got one. I would go American pronghorn. Someone that was mad with I've switched, dude. (laughs) I've switched to pronghorn. I don't get that worked up about My it. My state's fish and game regulations hmm. have not. They haven't. We have the Arizona Antelope Foundation. Yeah. But the blue tongue is kind of an antelope sheep thing, and the EHD is more of a deer cow thing for some reason. It got separates it. that way. Uh, I, I, I got a question for Doug, but I got one more thing on EHD. This person's game, someone wrote in, their game warden was saying that deformed hooves. Mm-hmm. You buy that? Yeah, absolutely. The, the hooves, when they get EHD and survive it, their hooves will slough off and they'll have a crack, a line across those hooves. So you can in the fall, have, just look at hunter harvested deer that come through and you'll see some like stress lines and cracks on the hooves. And that's evidence that they had. Another interesting thing is too, is the hemorrhagic disease causes a hemorrhaging of all the tissues, including the testicles. And the bucks that have uh, a lot of hemorrhaging in the testicles during the, the antler development period can produce cactus bucks. So, so there's a, a veterinarian, Karen Fox, oh. who led some research that that documented not a hundred percent, but what very clear that uh, EHD was producing some cactus bucks. In, no in shit. Area. Okay. I uh, love Jim. Everything he brings is great. <laughs> you like Jim? Yeah, that's awesome. He just like my testicle stories. Yeah. Expensive <laughs> <laughs> perk right up. Uh, <laughs> this guy says too when he he had a doe that had the def- he sent a picture of the deformed hooves with that crack and a, and a curvature to him. He said, when I processed her, the meat was very dark and had a foul odor. Yeah, I, I read that. That's unusual. If the animal's like viremic and, and hemorrhaging, I can absolutely see. But just if it's an animal that survived, maybe it just still had some of those lingering effects of all that hemorrhaging. I don't know. Yeah. Um, he brought up a thing. You know, you hear people say the dogs wouldn't even eat it. You know what was interesting is I was cleaning a coyote skull. I had snared a coyote and was cleaning the skull up the other day. And usually when I do that, like when I clean beaver skulls or muskrat skulls, whatever, uh, my dog, like, she knows the minute she can smell that simmering pot, like she knows what's coming. She would not eat that. Uh, you're going to think I'm crazy when I tell you this. She would not eat that coyote head pickings. Okay. Hmm. But it sat in her bowl long enough. I'm not, I got mm-hmm. eyewitnesses. <laughs> she ate, she drank the broth. But wouldn't eat the chunks, but she drank the broth out of the bowl. And I'm not kidding you, man. Five minutes later, walked over by the kitchen table and puked. Wow. wow. It's not a dog eat dog world. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Oh, yeah. And there it is. Yeah, it was the weirdest thing, dude. And that dog never pukes. That dog mm. eats, can eat. You wouldn't believe what that dog can eat. Never pukes. Does she eat duck tongue? I I put duck tongue in front of Yupik's face and he just. Well, I guarantee she did. It. You know what? Uh, you know what a favorite snack is for uh, the the fur handler Stu Miller. Mm-mm. What his dog likes is uh, the back feet on beavers. That's like a chew. It's like ah. a preferred chew toy ah. <laughs> for his dog, and it gets dazed out of a beaver's back foot. Wow, Doug. Uh, quick EHD uh, question for you. Sure. If 
it's a widely held conviction that slowing the spread that uh, uh, that, that slowing the spread of CWD often involves lowering deer numbers. Yes. Right? That like you'll like contagion rates will fall if there's less deer having less contact. It's a widely held conviction. In fact, um, in many states, when there's a CWD outbreak, one of the first steps you take is to try to go into the hot zone, reduce numbers to reduce spread and to, and to make it the uh, animals be less incentivized to strike off and do long journeys to find areas that aren't so crowded. Have you heard anyone, is this a, is this a belief that anyone expresses that E8, has you ever heard anyone be like EHD giving a real wallop to a deer population could be beneficial to really dramatically lowering a deer population thereby perhaps slowing CWD spread. Has anyone ever said this before? Or am I the only person that ever like kicked around that correlation? A very uh, smart man that I talk with this stuff about a lot um, has, uh, has said that. I mean, um, I summed it up in that uh, EHD could do the work that um, hunters are not. Um, and because EHD is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, is uh, it, it's indiscriminate. It's going to kill across the across the population. So big giant bucks down to fawns, um, which is part of what we need to do too. It's interesting because um, some some hunters in my area and people that I know and anyway and know and and and, and know them to be good people. Um, have said, oh, well, I had EHD in my place this year. We found six uh, deer around a, a little pond by, and and that's being like wildfire through the local community. I, and I wonder if part of that, I mean, I'm not, I don't question that he found six dead deer around his pond. I and, and so then they're saying, well, it's EHD. And I was like, well, okay, did the biologist come out and confirm that? And as I understand, you have to do that pretty quickly if mm-hmm. you're going to catch the virus and all of that. Yep. So like 72 hours or something like yeah. that. Um, and so, of course, that they, they didn't. Um, I also know a couple of the people who are spreading that to be very concerned about the um, uh, policies uh, and, and, and ideas that I'm uh, working on to reduce deer population. Yeah, so in our area. they might be incentivized, be like, ah, it's CHD. It's not CWD. Well, that, oh, no, 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 no. That, um, well, we don't need to reduce the deer oh, herd because uh, EHD is, is doing it for us. EHD is doing it for you. Uh, we'll get into some stats about CWD in your area in a minute here. Okay. Oh, you know what I was going to mention? Spen- you know Spencer's like... Um, I love Spencer, I want to say. Well, that. I would become one of my favorite people. <laughs> I wouldn't like him if I was you. Spencer tries to... Uh, Spencer tries to suppress information about CWD because he believes it's not sexy. Spencer believes that people are tired of hearing about it. Well... Uh, he's, he's, so he tries to suppress it. He's right that it isn't isn't uh, sexy. I think that what Spencer is trying to do is to keep things interesting, and uh, and I think that's a healthy discussion about. Is this, <laughs> I think it's a healthy discussion. It's like how much of this um, should we be talking about? I can tell you this. You remember those commercials when you were a kid that said, "Ignore your teeth and they'll go away." <laughs> remember those? Come on, you all remember them, right? Nope. No, but I like it. <laughs> Oh, well, I remember that, but maybe it's because where I grew up. Anyway, uh, 
you know, ignore CWD and it won't go away. So I'm turning that. No, I like mm-hmm. it, Doug, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know, I think in bumper stickers, so that's good. Yeah, you know, but the problem, I, I like the, the problem with that slogan is um, you're asking a lot of people because you're trying to get them to remember some shit that I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> right? Keep working on it. You'll, you'll come up with a good one. Oh, no, Doug already has it. Doug, listen, I don't know if you guys know this. It's not ours. It's just our turn. Mm-hmm. Like Doug made that up nice, but he didn't make that up. I'm telling you, man. I don't, <laughs> Spencer, you're good on Google. <laughs> Google Listen, that shit. I've done it. You go try to find. I challenge you. Any other reference? You type that shit into Google. It's it's like a Doug Duran festival <laughs> <laughs> for pages and pages and pages, and then you get to the end of the Doug Duran stuff. It's a black hole. There's nothing. Mm. There's nothing. When Doug, like Doug, made that up, and did you make up um, pay for what? What's, give the give the rallying cry. Buy, buy time and pay for science. Did you make that up? Yeah, well, I don't. I, yeah, <laughs> I that's mean, Doug, I, I had not heard it before, but that's what you know. Sort of the CWD thing. Uh, my uh, my attitude about chronic wasting disease is, is that buy time, pay for science. And um, I mean that that encompasses an awful lot, doesn't it? I mean, let's slow the spread. Let's um, let's um, uh, Reduce prevalence in areas where it exists. Um, let's preserve deer hunting in those areas. I, I'm, uh, Spencer has an open invitation to come to the farm and and deer hunt with me. And, and part of the reason is is that I'm just gonna like lay CWD on him the whole time. But <laughs> oh yeah, man, uh, sex, you're but, gonna sex him up with some CWD talk. <laughs> but Cal was just there, and Cal's like, you know, at some point, I mean, we had our CWD discussions and everything, but I, he's like, at some point, you're just deer hunting. I was like, yeah. I mean, it's not like we're wandering around like uh, CWD, you know. Hazmat <laughs> suits. Uh, <laughs> but you know, and so um, I mean, at the end of the day, we've it's been around long enough by us, um, and I can talk about what's happened on our farm in our area. But that that you, you know, it's it's sort of that new norm. Get used to it. I've got the information. I know what I'm supposed to do. Here are the things that we can do. I get involved politically, and um, you know, as an activist about us not doing what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's what concerns me more than anything. And that's like following the science. Well, let's follow the science. And the science says we need to be doing a better job of demographic control, population control. Um, and we're not. And in Wisconsin, we're really good. I mean, you can go onto the Wisconsin DNR CWD web, uh, website and go to the CWD and deer metrics and all of this. And we've got great information on there. And I applaud our Department of Natural Resources for that. But what we don't do is a very good job we don't, uh, at all of, of uh, doing anything to control it, mostly because it's not science, it's politics, which goes back to that discussion we were having earlier. Mm-hmm. You get mad at me a little bit. And I remember you got one of the times you, got, the time. mo- yeah, one of the times you <laughs> got most mad at me is I had expressed to you, no, I had expressed, and you wrote me a real mean email. Like it's actually kind of like a mean email. I was pissed off, and uh, I had said, I had said something to the effect of, if I wasn't worried about potential transmission to humans down the road, that 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 this thing would mutate and spread to humans or spread to livestock. No, I didn't even bring up livestock. Humans. If it, that that my obsession with concern about CWD. I didn't put it quite this way, but would fall like 90%. Like if God came down and said, listen, bro, no human will ever get CWD. I would 
feel 90%. My, my concerns would be alleviated by 90%. And Doug sent me a big old, oh my, you got personal in it. It's like a mean old email, mean yeah, old text was, message. I, and um, a side note, Pat Durkin has told me that I need to get, an, uh, speaking of developing apps, that it I makes to, your text messages sound nicer? No, that oh. I need to get an app that once I start typing shit like that, that it will not allow me to send it until my blood pressure goes down and I no. have a chance to review it. Doug oh. even had like a threat to me. He's like basically like, uh, really? No, you didn't, not that you're going to come beat me up or anything, but it was like a threat like um, one, you know, one sentence like that can destroy decades of work and... Well, I think that's. I, <laughs> He's gonna double down on it. I'll, I'll, hey, hey, hey! Get the the hook that app up to your mouth, too. <laughs> uh, Jim. Uh, I want to get back to just some stuff about Wisconsin. Um, and, and like, I want to talk about C with, with Jim's gonna talk about a new outbreak, like a new state added to the long list of states that now have CWD. Um, this will speak to Ross. Ross being from Idaho. Jim's going to talk about that. And then, uh, and then Doug, I, I want to get like kind of anecdotal and local and talk about like in your neck of the woods, what's going on? Like, like how is deer hunting just getting different? And, and I think it's going to be like an alarm, but let him do the Idaho deal. But, but collect your thoughts. Sort of deer hunting is just different now, man. And, and I think that this difference is going to become more widespread over time. And there's going to be a lot, hell of a lot more stories like Doug's story. Uh, from the last couple deer seasons in Wisconsin. But uh, hit us first, like Idaho, like how does this happen? All of a sudden someone in Idaho is like, holy shit, this deer's got CWD. Yeah, CWD is spreading, you know, increasing in prevalence where it is. And prevalence is a percent of the animals in the population that is positive. And and it's spreading. And and Idaho just joined the CWD club, being the 27th state with uh, CWD positive. What was interesting about Idaho is it was found on the western side of the state. And there's no CWD yet in Washington in those states to the west, but there's CWD crowding in on three sides from Wyoming and Utah and, and Montana coming in from the east side. So it was really interesting that this first incident was two bucks that were harvested in October of this year in on the west side of the, the state there. And I So it's all over. I mean, so I think, well, I think it's, it's got to be, there's got to be a lot of <clears throat> filling in the hole, filling in the gaps. And right? that might be what's going on here because they just developed a new CWD plan for the state in 2021. And part of that was we're going to test the panhandle in the northern tip every year. And we're going to test two units over on the eastern border every year because that's where we expect it to come from. And then there's three other units in the rest of the state. They're going to rotate. And, and so the first year they tested this one unit that was going to rotate. Like just kind of like throwing in like a fluke. Yeah, and th- so they just started testing there, and and they found it. And the fact that it's on the west side of the state, I would expect them to be filling in the blanks once they start sampling a little more. I've never got your perspective on it. You know what I was saying about the the human infection risk? Do you uh, where do you fall on it personally? Or, I've, or, I've never killed a deer that was CWD positive, so I've never had to make the decision. Um, I think about four decades of people in the Northern Rockies eating CWD positive deer, and it's never jumped the human barrier into mm-hmm. humans. That gives me a lot of comfort. Um, but the CDC and, and um, World Health Organization recommend that nothing that's been positive with prions enter the human food chain and the CDC recommends you, th- you throw the deer out. And so Man, I know those recommendations are, are out Those guys there. are a little jumpy though, I feel. I, I think it's a personal decision. I, I, 
I would probably not have uh, any qualms eating one myself. Is that right? I knew it was positive because of four decades of, of pretty high incidents in Wyoming, Colorado, and nobody's gotten sick. But if you got little kids around the table, oh, got a God. wife, maybe a pregnant wife, it's kind of a different conversation. And it's a personal decision. I agree. And, and um, I talk about this more often than uh, I want to and certainly more than Spencer wants me to. But um, <laughs> it is a personal decision. And what I've been finding is um, that people who are going to eat it anyway don't get their deer tested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a little troubling in that, yeah, you've got I, – I, I would never I, – I, I have killed a CWD positive deer. Um, actually, the one that I killed, a friend of mine took it, um, and uh, he ended up eating it. And uh, I already had, you know, freezer full. It was the first one that I killed that was positive. But anyway, I personally am, am not – have chosen not to, although even though we ha- are having positive deer on the farm, none of them are ones that I have uh, uh, butchered and kept for myself, uh, which is also a behavior thing that we can talk about. But um, I'm keeping younger deer. Um Ones that are uh, that I used to think were less likely to to have the disease, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, don't it, it, you know? Uh, if you want, it's a personal decision to do it, but don't make that decision for somebody else, and don't make it that decision for children. I I, I just it. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, is it an abundance of caution or is it just being a good person? I think it's a little of both. You know, lay lay out a little bit about what like just what you're seeing. I mean, because. You're, you you mentioned that you describe yourself as an activist, okay? Like, uh, you're not an academic. No. Um, you're interested in CWD because you've lived CWD now. For 20 years. On a place, like, you've lived CWD for 20 years on a place that's been in your family for a century. Mm-hmm. So, like, you, you, you're sort of, like, living it in real time, meaning, like, when you look out the window or drive around on your property, it's a thing that... And it's become, I don't, you know, I don't want to say like, uh, you're not like, obs- you know, you're not obsessed with it, but I don't know, man. Do you, when was the last time you went a day without saying CWD? <laughs> well, in the fall, not very often. I can't, I can't, couldn't even tell you. But it, it you know, it, it's interesting because I, I wrote an article, a couple articles for uh, for Meat Eater, and they're out there, and you can and check them out. And um, part of his why, one of them was why every hunter, and in fact, I said why everyone should be uh, concerned about CWD um, from all the way from the animal rights or animal welfare people down to big giant buck uh, trophy hunters, um, and then what we can do about it. Um, and I've, I, I have seen the change, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, when CWD first, first you know, was discovered in Wisconsin, had the DNR knocked on my door and said, we've got to kill every deer in the area? Um, and your farm is right in the middle of that area, so let's get started. I'd had I'd been skeptical, you know, and kill uh, every deer. Yeah, I mean that's what they wanted to do in the eradication zone. Got it. And they, they and they tried real hard to do that. And I'd started having questions like, well, why is it here? Why is it here? Why is this the hot zone? And I don't think we've ever really gotten that the answer to that question, in Wisconsin. There's been a lot of speculation, and there have been a few people that I know and mostly trust who, you know, who anecdotally have talked about some of the things that went on down there. And I guess I don't want to get too deep into that, the weeds on that. Well, I, mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand what you're saying right now. Like why, how did it start in, how did it start in the Mount Horeb area? Um, 
that why was it first discovered there? The reason, you know, this is a, a farm analogy. If you see one rat, you got a hundred of them. Okay. And there they found, they saw a sick deer and tested it for CWD and then realized, and then they, they had been doing surveillance for a while. And surveillance testing is a really interesting thing um, to me. Um, and then they, they found that it was a little more widespread, but the prevalence was really low. I mean, do you remember what those I numbers don't. were? It was, you know, like in the single digit percentages. Um, um, but what's been interesting to me about living with it, if you're asking that question, is um, what we've discovered up until uh, four years ago, uh, we had no um, positives and we'd been testing what was recommended. I mean, on the Duran family farm. On the Duran, the fa- in our area and the Duran family farm, we hadn't had a positive and we were testing every deer that they would allow us to test and they were skewing it towards older deer, which to the minds of the biologists were the ones that were most apt to have it. Once we started having, uh, four years ago, when we started, which was about the time I quit doing buck management and all of that, um, you know, uh, retired to Sombrero and all those, all those things. Um, uh, can I tell people what that means? You, you were running on, like on, on your family farm, you guys are running a program of like trying to grow big bucks. Yeah. We were doing like, it. Like a, let, let, let bucks walk and let them grow up big. Yeah. And shooting um, does the whole time though. Uh, oh yeah. We've always, we've always, uh, I mean, for the last 25 years, really, we've been, um, we've been doe killers. Um, uh, and, and remember that I, when I grew up, when, when I first started hunting in Wisconsin, four, four hunters had to get together in August, uh, buy their license, tear a little tag off, write their name on it and their number, send it in with some money to the DNR and apply for one doe tag. Party permit. Right? Party permit. Remember yeah. you had the badges yep. that you wore on your arm and yep. everything? It was kind of, and, but you got to kill, you got to kill one doe with that. Now in my county, with every buck tag, you get four doe tags. So that's in 50 years, this is my 50th year of hunting, um, that uh, that's how much it switched, you know, in terms of population and management and stuff like that. It's just, it's an important thing when people say, oh, I'm concerned about how few deer we have. I'm like, well, you should have been around in (laughs) 1971. (laughs) Um, And so what we ended up finding then when we got our first positive, it was a two and a half year old buck. And in four years, we just had, the buck that you're supposed to let walk. Yeah, but if we had already. If you're, big, I, but, if you're big buck managing, but I had. Yeah. Oh yeah, I had already said that those all bets are off on that. Shoot whatever deer is going to make you happy, and you know, I just I got tired of. Well, I mean, you remember we had a little incident where managing people gets to be a pain in the butt, and somebody was offended that I said something about our program um, on the on on the podcast, and. Uh, Anyway, I just like, you know, they're for a lot of reasons. And one of them being, I don't want to manage people anymore. I just want to hunt deer and want people to be happy. And, oh, by the way, we have a, a situation here where we need to be more aware of what's, what's going on. So let's, uh, and younger deer behavior, and Jim's going to you just tell me to shut up when it's time for me <laughs> to shut up. Younger deer tend to be the ones that travel furthest from their home range. So when we first started getting positive deer four years ago, our five, first five deer were a year and a half old buck, um, a two and a half, two two and a half year old bucks, a year and a half old doe, and a three year old doe. Those were our first five in four years. And those we, are aged by people who are actually aging deer, not guys looking at like it's that's, that's a, a, yeah the no. sway of its back. You know, that's whatever, no yeah. no no no. That's being aged with the you know the tooth charts at the CWD test okay, station. Yeah. Um, 
And so that kind of told me, and, and at the same time, in that in those 120 deer, at the same time, we were killing five and a half year old bucks and four and a half year old bucks and six year old does. And so our, our deer, quote unquote, um, on our, the ones that were sort of our core deer were, didn't, were not CWD oh, positive. That's interesting. But the, but the yearlings that were dispersing into your area. We're bringing it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I anecdotally, and I guess the, the biologists are agreeing with me now, um, or they agreed with me. I'm agreeing with what my anecdotal evidence follows the, what the, what they're, what they're saying. Um, so in four years and 120 deer, we had five positive. This year we've received, we've oh, killed. Get, get, oh, hit, hit me with that again. I didn't catch it. 120 deer over a four year period of time. That you tested. Yeah. We had every deer. We, once we could test every deer, we have tested every deer. I mean, even you were there the last time. Oh, no, no, no. I just, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I just wanted to catch the span of time and the number. Yeah. So we average about, we have been averaging about 30 deer harvested a year. Okay. um, On our 400 and then the, you know, surrounding property, they also have, I'm able to hunt. Um, So uh, five deer out of 120, somebody can do the math. I'll I'll point out that you host a hell of a lot of hunters. Yeah. uh, Generally over 30 people uh, deer hunt our place every year. Yeah. Um, um, and we are at 29 deer right now. And we have another, we have uh bow hunting, you know, late season bow hunting. And we also have the holiday hunt, antlerless hunt coming up yet. So you'll get there. Well, we'll, we'll hit 30. I mean, I was, you know, people ask me, what's your number? And I was like, don't stop shooting. Um, and I, and honestly, I have 11 trail cameras out and they all come to a, there's a cell setup, and they all come to one and I get that. And we have killed 29 deer on our farm, and you cannot tell the difference on the cell cameras. The rate of photos coming in. Yeah, the rate of photos coming in. And, I mean, sure, well, that buck isn't showing up anymore because <laughs> mm-hmm. he's dead. But um, uh, it, it, so anyway, so five deer in four years, 120 over four-year period of time. So one or two a year, you know, not really a um, – so 4%, 4.5% or something like that, which I'm like – Let's keep it at that, which is sort of what our management strategy has been. This year, we've killed 29 deer. We're still waiting the res- from the results for 10. We, but So 19 deer, six of them have been positive. Mm. And uh, all of the good bucks, we killed uh, um, a uh, five-and-a-half-year-old 10-pointer, just like buck of a lifetime thing. And I um, just broke my heart to find out. And, but I wondered about that deer cause I took, I think I sent you the pictures of them. I know I posted them on Instagram. This guy's like standing in front of me, you know, let me pose here in front of the sign for you and then walk down. I mean, he was, it seemed like, I mean, yes, rut behavior, except there wasn't a doe around, you know? And, um, and so he ended up uh, being harvested by a friend of mine. And then, um, all of our, so all of our bow bucks, which were, uh, two and a half, three and a half and five year, uh, five and a half year old buck, um, tested positive, and um, we've had um, another buck test positive and two does, and one was a, uh, I'm sorry, both the does were three-year-old, were aged at three years old. So um, feel a little bit like we're losing the battle, and part of, part of that is um, because the population is still really high. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX Off-Road Map and Navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. 
Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. What's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, Gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you can still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Hit me right now. Um, what is a what's a current CWD denier? What are they? What's the CWD denier saying right now? They're not saying it's not a thing anymore. They've given up on that. Oh, you know that. And they're not saying that prevalence will level off at two percent. They've given up on that. Well, I, I'm not sure that um, the person who said that has you know the the uh, uh, James Kroll who uh, said that when he was our he dear, predicted it would level off at what yeah, in Wisconsin two percent. Pat Durkin's got him on tape saying it. So, um, and, 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 you know, that we should take a more passive approach to CWD in Wisconsin when he was our, um, our dear trustee. So would he still, I mean, he's a, he's a, you know, he's, he's from the science community. Would he still say that it hasn't passed 2%? 
Um, I, I know there was some questioning of how the data is uh, – if you don't like the data, you start questioning how the data is gathered. Hmm. So I haven't heard from him. I haven't heard from James Cole recently, so I'm not sure what his stance is um, on yeah. stuff. Now. The last thing that I read that he said and um, was that well, CWD is uh, again to downplay it. It's just a problem in four counties in Wisconsin. How'd you like to be the counties around those four counties? Um, mm -hmm. uh, currently, in our county, um, prevalence is different than percentage of deer tested. So prevalence is as Jim described it before. But because we don't require testing, it's completely voluntary in in Wisconsin, and it sort of makes sense, right? Um, yeah, I can't picture I, I can't picture getting on board with mandatory testing, except for in surveillance areas where they're trying to figure out what's going on around here, like Idaho right now. They just mandatory. Yeah, they just added a bunch of tags, and you have to get them tested because that's the purpose. You know, I do want to walk something back because when you kill a black bear. You damn sure mandatory bring it down. Mm -hmm. When you get a river otter, you bring it down. Yeah, bobcats has to be tagged now. Yeah, no, no, no you're right. There is mandatory testing on stuff. And those every are, mountain goat, like in this state, every mountain goat, every bighorn sheep, bighorn sheep, sure. It's yeah. a volume right. thing. They're, right? ta so, they're tagged I mean, and tested. You have to bring it for visual inspection. So uh -huh. I'm just saying, I, I at first when you said like mandatory blank, I was like, well, that's unprecedented. But then I quickly realized that it's hardly unprecedented because there's tons of shit you got to bring down. Yeah. Like, you know. Well, it'd probably be unprecedented in that volume. volume Vol yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, and so in a in an area, and I've had discussions with the biologists about this, and I, and I think Jim would agree, and if he doesn't, again, <laughs> tell me to shut up and, and correct me. But um, in an area where you know that CWD already persists, um, mandatory testing doesn't necessarily make any sense because you already know it persists there. And if you're getting enough tests from voluntary testing to to understand how it's spreading, good mm -hmm. enough. Yeah, if you're getting enough. But if you get like a couple new positives in a new area, you want to know what's going on. Because like, I think it was Arkansas that got their first positive and they went in and tested and they were like 10% already. The, the, the oh. prevalence rate was so high that it was obvious it had been there a long time. Yeah, Tennessee had the same know. experience. Oh. There has been people on the other side, like the people who are not alarmed. I, I, I should stop, out, out, of, out of respect, I should stop saying like CWD deniers. Let me think of another way to put it. People who are not alarmed, okay? People, what should I call them? I don't know what the hell. CWD deniers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Those not alarmed. There has to be an argument. There has been an argument that they're saying, dude, it's just been here. It's like, it's all over. You've been eating it. They have it. We still got a lot of deer. Right? Yeah. Humans haven't caught it. I think that's what they're saying. Yeah. And, and, uh, right. And, uh, yeah, there is that evolution from, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's fake. It's a hoax. To it's always been everywhere. It's a to yeah. It's always, <laughs> it's yeah, right. No, no. It, it really is. I mean, it's like, and, and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Well, I can tell you this, this is the first year where we've, we've, uh, got sick deer on our cameras. Huh. Um, and it's heartbreaking when you get that. Um, I posted on my Instagram page, uh, a video from, uh, the doe derby, the, the, the little event that we had, um, from 15 miles South of us where, um, fella pulls into his hunting on a farm field and here's his buck laying in the weeds and it's had already dropped its antlers. It was emaciated and it was just laying there shaking and it, mm. six seconds long and it'll break your heart. Um, uh, there are, uh, 
fawns testing positive for CWD. So if you're a big giant buck guy and prevalence is so high that fawns are testing positive, um, uh, a buck fawn is going to die from that disease in two years if he doesn't die from a bullet. Uh, so the days of big giant bucks are going to become more difficult. That said, because this guy's going to write in, um, Richland County, we are still killing big giant bucks. That's the, like, we and I've talked well, about this. I, I, I hit you up with that idea. Here, like, uh, here I am. I'm just a Joe Blow sitting there right now being like, man, how worried should I be about this? And, and you're like, it's okay. It's indisputable that CWD is always fatal. Okay. It, it kills them. It kills them in what, two years? Yep. So here you are, you're like in a hot zone. You've been dealing with CWD for how many years? Well, 20, I mean, uh, south of us. So you're still shooting big bucks. And I'm just saying like, t- like l- l- here I am. So I'm this guy and I'm saying to you like, okay, Doug, that's all great and fine. You've had CWD around for that long. You got this huge prevalence, but a guy just got a once in a lifetime buck on your place. So what really, if I'm not worried about catching it, what's the problem? It's not a problem on, on my place now. Okay. But I can take you to a property south of us, about 15 miles, where they weren't killing big giant bucks anymore. They were finding them dead in the woods. Mm-hmm. And what they changed their attitude and said, well, we're just going to become deer hunters again. And, and they test every deer. And um, so they feel, like they, they feel like they've crossed that threshold where they don't have deer getting to be five years old. Jim? Yeah, it, it, it bound to, it's going to change. It's bound to change. When, when you get an animal that, that contracts it and is only going to live for two years, you're not going to have a lot of mature bucks out there. You're going to run out of mature but bucks. But are because, we seeing that happen in places from your perspective? I don't know personally. You know, you'd have to go to the northern Rockies, um, like Wyoming, Colorado, places where they have 40% prevalence in a game management unit. <clears throat> I'm just not familiar enough to know whether they're seeing changes in age structure and things. Uh, I don't know, but when you get prevalence rates. I would think that'd be like the first thing that I think that like, like that would be the thing that, that people would be most, not most, no, the second most interesting part of this. The first most interesting part is disease transmission in my view. The second most interesting part is like, is this the end of big giant bucks? I would feel like someone would be looking at like Boone and Crockett entries coming out of these CWD Mm -hmm. zones. Mm -hmm. If you've got 30 to 40% of the, of the males, one thing too that, a lot of people don't talk about is when we talk about prevalence rates throughout the West in mule deer, prevalence rate is defined by those wildlife disease experts as the percent of the males older than one year that are positive. So That's it's very specific. Yeah. And, and so females have a lower prevalence rate, um, but, but you, have, you have to arrive at some kind of definition. So you're not adding a bunch of does in one state and not another state. So, so they've defined prevalence rate and can keep it consistent throughout the West as just being bucks older than a year, males older than a year, and that's prevalence rate. And so when you've got 20, 30% prevalence rate, you're just not going to get bucks that are living to six, seven, eight years old. You're going to get very few of them. Because at any given time, one-fifth of bucks over one year of age. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then it's also driven by um, population. But you can go on to the, um, uh, to the um, uh, CWD page of uh, Wisconsin DNR, and there's some uh, prevalence studies that are going on in southeastern Richland County. We're in northeastern Richland County. You can go into southeastern Richland County and see what the trends are there. And those are the areas where anecdotally it supports exactly the same thing, that – the, the anecdotes are it's higher prevalence in, in older bucks. And anecdotally, we're not running out of deer because we're really good at 
growing deer, you know, birthing deer in our part of, you know what it's like. It's just, it's Shangri-La if you're a deer. We've got all these groceries in the spring and summer and fall. Um, in the winter, not so much. But um, so we're producing a lot of deer. And that's one of the things that the, uh, what did we call them? The CWD skeptics? Yeah, um, we'll say, word. I thought they were going to, uh, I thought all the deer were going to be dead by now. It's like, yeah, I thought the prevalence was going to level off at 2%. <laughs> You know, what the hell you want to talk about here? I mean, don't don't throw that shit at me. Let's take a look at what, what is really happening. And um, uh, positive fawns, and, and Jim could talk about this too, I'm sure, about, you know, is a, is a fawn uh, getting CWD from a positive doe in utero or is that, you know, happening after? And, boy, there's some really interesting – I just haven't mm-hmm. been down that rabbit hole too far. I have talked to a couple of biologists about it. but I think I saw a, a report recently of some research that I think is still in progress – that they found the malformed prion in fetal tissue. Mm. Not even born yet. Yeah. And it's got CWD. So wow. what I'm trying Man. to what I'm trying to do with 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 my here's where I'm coming from with it. And again, you can read that article. I I like killing big giant bucks. I am not a guy who wants to go out and kill every deer just because every deer, you know, is is possible. Uh, because we can just let's just kill every deer to control this disease. I want a healthy deer herd. I think we need to be talking about healthy deer management um, as opposed to, you know, big, big giant buck management. The other thing that's happening in our area, we got so deep into um, the big giant buck management, they're not rare anymore. I mean, oh, yeah, nice 160-inch deer. We killed a 200 over here. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's true. There's still just giants being killed. A giant was killed by a neighbor, you know, same thing, 170 class buck, CWD uh, not detected. Huh, yeah. You know, four-year-old buck. So there's some of that too. It's sort of like you would talk one time about COVID and I was like, well, another one of those things that Steve likes that I latched on or says that, that I latched on to. And that was, you said, boy, COVID, the thing that freaks me out about it is how sort of uh, how it affects every uh, things differently, people differently, and some people get really sick, and some people hardly get sick at all. And this is almost the same sort of thing. Yeah. But as prevalence goes up, we're going to have less of that. We have. I, I, I. What I preach to people is, it's the deer herd's going to be smaller in our area. And you know what? We can either be the ones driving that and have a nice age structure and a nice, um, you know, a nice balanced herd. Um, with a, a lower prevalence, or we can let CWD do it, and yeah, we can have all kinds of deer, and they're going to be young ones. And Jim? 40 percent of them are going to be positive then. Yeah, not two. Yeah. All right, Jim, I'm going to hit you with some quick hitters because see, <clears throat> we got the problem. Richie's over here dying to. He's, he's ready to play medium trivia. trivia. <laughs> you doing all right over there? Uh, yeah, no, I'm doing great. This is fascinating sitting here and watch this, and <laughs> good deal. So hang in there because we're going to do. Jim's going to do. Some, Jim's going to do a bunch of quick hitters. We're going to time you on how quick you can handle all these oh. questions. <laughs> okay. Ready? Guy wrote in with a doe, an antler doe, which has got like three, it's a full on, what do you call it? It's got like double brow tines. Yeah. It's got hard, string bases. Hard antlered, like a nice buck, mm-hmm. but it's a doe. That's an unusual, that's a really unusual case, that one that was sent in there. I've been getting these reports for forever, and, and the confusion is there's a whole bunch of different conditions that can make a buck actually look like a female. When you, when you, kill, when you kill a deer that's got antlers, 
you, you open the legs up and it doesn't look like you don't find any male genitalia that's that's obvious. <clears throat> so here I'm talking about testicles again, Spencer. Pay attention. So there's, there's, He's like, now nah, it's getting sexy in here. There, <laughs> there's a condition called hypogonadal bucks, which which their testicles are actually in the scrotum, but they're the size of a pea. So if you want to insult your 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 campmates, just call them hypogonadal. <laughs> but, Got it. But they don't have the kind of uh, testosterone, and so they they. And they don't develop as they're developing young. They don't develop the the full male external genitalia to look normal. And so when you when someone opens the legs, it looks like a female, and they immediately declare it as as an antler doe, oh. and they go on. But it's really not. It's just a malformed buck. There's also crypt orchid males, which the testicles don't. They never descend into the scrotum. They stay in the body cavity, encased in fat. And that and, throws people off. And and so you look, and there's no scrotum. There's no testicles. And and sometimes even the penis can look like it's in a fold, like almost almost different, almost like a female. And so that, that throws people off there too. But in that case, the testicles are in the body and they're producing testosterone. And, and so they get hard antler and, and everything else. So this is a lot of those like uh, doe bucks. Sometimes they're called um, pseudo hermaphrodites. Cause but I mean, it's like people are, really and then people are writing to you being like, it's a doe. It's a doe. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then you say, well, what kind of genitalia, what it looked like? Well, I don't know. We gutted it. You know, there's no proof. Gotcha. And so a lot of cases you don't know what's going on. But So this picture are, here, you can't really tell. Well, I, I, I think I can. Right, that's the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, there are cases where you have antler does, and that can happen from uh, an injury to the skull. There's a certain region, the temporal bone in the skull, that's real sensitive to if the bone's injured in, at a certain time of the year. It can produce, even in a doe, it can produce an odd antler coming out of the, the, the skull plate. Because those produce testosterone in the adrenal gland too. So they produce a little bit of testosterone. And antler development is not dependent on testosterone. Actually, antlers grow at a low point of testosterone during the year. They grow their antlers in velvet, and then you get close to rut. Testosterone levels come up. Those rising testosterone levels then dry the velvet. They shed the velvet, and then they go through rut. And after the rut, testosterone drops precipitously, and that's what triggers then the shedding of the antlers dropping off. So the antlers are growing during a period of low testosterone. So in certain cases, if a doe has a tumor on her ovary and it messes up the hormone system or she gets an injury in the skull, she can actually produce antlers. And there's cases where does have antlers that are actually reproductive and they're they're reproducing and have a fawn. But in in almost every single one of those cases, the does stay in velvet because they don't have that that dramatic increase in testosterone to dry the velvet and shed the antlers. So they'll stay in velvet through the winter and, and even hang on to their antlers and not shed them because they don't have the testosterone. Oh, no kidding, really, yeah. But what's unusual about this is that that doe is in hard antler in that picture from Missouri. And I and I, I wrote to the, the game warden who contacted the hunter out in the field. She sent me some more pictures. And in one of the pictures, you can almost see it. You can clearly see it doesn't have a scrotum, doesn't have a penis. It has four nipples, but males have four nipples, too. In deer, a hunter called me one time, said he shot an antler doe because it had four nipples. And I said, look inside your shirt right now. Tell me what you see. <laughs> He's like, no. yep, four nipples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, four nipples. Yeah. But but in that particular picture, I think I can almost see it, what looks like a vulva, uh, kind of on the edge of the picture. I think that might be a, a legitimate hard antler doe, which is extremely rare. But these odd things happen. She could have something strange with her ovaries that's producing enough testosterone to do that. Okay, ready for the next one? Alyssa from Michigan wrote in, she's got a picture of a buck with cow spots. She's calling it. So Paw Paw, Michigan, a buck with cow spots. We call it piebald. Yep. Um, yep. It's like not quite like being an albino. You can right. clarify that. Right. And there's people saying like, man, you got to shoot those deer because they got health problems. 
Yeah, there's some truth to that. You don't need to shoot those deer. There's, there's actually that piebald condition is something that shows up here and there, especially. On I remember Michigan media. made it that you can't shoot those deer. A lot. Of, it's state by state. Some states you can't shoot a white deer. You can't shoot a piebald deer. So it depends on that. But that piebald condition is a recessive genetic condition and comes along with um, deformed spine like scoliosis. Okay. Um, deformed hooves, bowed legs, short legs, short nose, short jaw. Um, sometimes internal organs are, are not formed correctly. And so there's other genetic problems with those piebald deer, but some deer, some deer die right away because of the problems when they're fawns. Some deer don't have too many of those other problems and they'll live to adulthood. And you'll have a, you'll have a buck, a mature buck that looks like Doug's favorite beer, the spotted cow from New Glarious Brewery. Got They've it. got these brown and white patches and they're always random. There's no two that are alike. They're just random on the body. And they can be sexually viable. Yeah, definitely. So mm-hmm. is it ill lot? So is it like... Um, when they make it illegal to get one, to shoot one, is that kind of just, it's just like, it's like an aesthetic thing. Like people want to see them. It's aesthetics. It's, it's not a common enough thing that it's going to be more common. Um, if you preserve them and so many of them are dying because of the other issues like that, it's, it's just purely a social thing. It's not going to affect any. Okay. Last, you ready for, oh, sorry. Go ahead. You ready for the last one? Yep. Deer with fangs. From the elk, my, elk ivories, deer mm-hmm. with fangs, people sure. write in all the time. They got like a deer with some crazy teeth going on. Yeah, white-tailed mule deer do not normally have upper canine teeth. But in rare cases, that we get a throwback from evolution. And, and I say that because back in the Miocene, the early dino deer or the early primitive deer, generally most of those had fangs. And, and some of the early ones just had fangs. And then antlers kind of developed and showed up in the fossil record. And as we got more and more... Fangs are older in the fossil record yes. than antlers? Yep. There's some, some antlerless animals that are in the deer family, depending on when you start the deer family, with big tusks like that. And the tusks probably serve the same purpose as antlers, There's, as display, um, probably mostly as display, maybe as fighting, intimidation of, of rivals. Um, but then as antlers developed and got more elaborate throughout deer evolution, those fangs got smaller and smaller. And now we still have over half of the 40 species in the deer family that have upper canine teeth. And um, when you get a, when elk. you talk, when you hear someone talk about an elk ivory, like That's I'm having fang. my, I'm having a necklace made for my wife, um, um, that has elk ivory incorporated in it. That is a vestigial tusk. That's a deer fang. Sure. That's just one. Elk are one of the species that, that retain those upper Upper canines. What's but, interesting about them is that how wiggly they are. Sometimes they're loose. Sometimes they are firm in the in the uh-huh. socket there. But you think about um, like a primitive deer probably looks a lot like a munchak with small antlers up on big stalks and then um, canines. But but with what's interesting about the white tail and mule deer not normally having canines is species that do have big canines like the Chinese water deer has big tusks. And underneath on the lower lip, underneath that fang is a black spot, black fur that kind of accentuates that white fang. Oh, no kidding. And it just, it kind of, it kind of shows it off. But what's interesting is you look at a deer mount of a white tail or mule deer, and they also have that black labial spot on their lower, on their really? lower jaw, right where that canine would be. And so the question is, did they lose their canines in most individuals and still retain that black labial spot? Is that what that black label spot's for? Because what else is it for? And you look at some other tusked animals and you see that black spot. That's pretty interesting. It might be this evolutionary throwback from, yeah. from dino deer. Are there any other primitive characteristics? I, I thought that I've seen that uh, some of the canine deer will often have like a very black defined line above their eyes, like a that black was, eyebrow. That was one individual deer from, from Louisiana. There was a deer that had I thought that deer lived in canine. Florida. 
I maybe it was. It, maybe yeah, it was I Florida. I, I think Louisiana. Oh, well, oh was it Louisiana? I think, I think Louisiana. That's what was in my head. But it had pretty big canine tusks. And then it had the strange black oh, V yeah, shape dude, on the forehead. Yeah. And so that was um, Lindsey Thomas wrote an, or from, from uh, National Deer Association, wrote an article about that and talked to me about that. And he talked a lot in that article about that being um, the, the black markings and the canines all being primitive characteristics. But no one, you know, no one really knows what the fur looked like back in the Miocene. But I had an illustrator for a, for a Mielder book that's coming up illustrate some of these extinct deer species. And I actually had them illustrate one of them with that black V from that individual in oh, Louisiana. Richard, do you feel like uh, Jim's going to kick the shit out of everybody at Trivia? Yes. <laughs> is it, is it about, if it's about Dude, deer. If you want to win, man, I'd have your sights on beating Jim. Um, that's, I'm kind of working on my angle over here. <laughs> uh, is there a high prevalence of deer questions? Um, I don't think so. Good. All right, we're, we're going to get right into it. This is kicking off, uh, what the hell year is it? 2022. <laughs> Kick off your 2022 with some hot meat eater trivia action. Hosted by Spencer Newhart. That's right, this is trivia you're not going to get from Jeopardy or Trivial Pursuit. Hey, hold on, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, okay, all right. My eraser, I'm going to think it's not in there. You got sleeves? There's an extra. <laughs> your sleeves yeah. are even black. <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm ready. Go again. Ready? This is trivia you're not going to get from Jeopardy or Trivial Pursuit or any Barney trivia. These are born out of Meat Eater's four verticals and made just for our Meat Eater audience. Steve, what are our four verticals? I'm going to stop doing this because I think that it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I don't. It, they don't fit. I think this makes it special. When you have a question, that well, well, right, go ahead. They don't fit. Okay. You can say, like, like our, what we're interested here. <laughs> At, at, at this year, we're in, well, our interests, uh-huh. hunting, fishing, wild foods, wildlife conservation. But when it comes to trivia and you ask a mountain man question, it doesn't mm-hmm. fit. Okay. <laughs> I'll ask someone else that question from now on. <laughs> there is a it's prize. Out, it, listen, dude. It's outdoor trivia. Mm-hmm. But it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like specific to meat eater. Okay, then rebrand it. All right. But there's a, when we come out with the actual game that you can buy, uh-huh. it's going to have a Pioneers and Explorers category. Sure. Okay? All right. When you go to our website, you're not going to go to a drop-down menu that says Pioneers and Explorers <laughs> on it. Uh, technically, under our uh, conservation tab okay. is where you'll find anthropology, so, so, natural so, history. Okay. So <laughs> the worst hide hunter, okay, the worst hide hunter. Uh-huh. Okay. Jay Wright Moore would live under conservation? The man who claims to have killed 10,000 buffalo? Yeah. When we cover a poacher, <laughs> that goes under wildlife management, which lives under conservation. Okay. All right. Let's start. There is a prize. <laughs> Meat Eater will donate $100 to the conservation organization the winner's choosing. We've played four times so far. Brody has won twice. Steve has won once. And Clay has won once. All right, we have some housekeeping. I have a punt gun update. This is a quote from the Boone and Crockett Club. Not yet. This is a quote (laughs) from the Boone and Crockett Club. Many states had outlawed the use of punt guns by the 1860s, but it wasn't working. At the turn of the 20th century, federal law was desperately needed, not just for waterfowl, but all of the nation's wildlife. Okay. 
<laughs> also, I found three punk guns for sale in online auctions right now. They range from $4,000 to $8,000 and from six feet long to 10 feet long. One seller's selling point said that his buddy shoulder fired the gun and broke his collarbone. Mm. So he'd recommend you mount it on something if you shoot it again. That's what I like to hear, man. Yeah. <laughs> front of That's boat. the one I want. A lot of heat behind that. Uh, now, for today's trivia, we have a stacked room. We have Jim, who knows everything about everything. Doug, who also knows everything about everything. And then also we have Richie. If not, he'll find out. That's right. Richie is representing all Meat Eater listeners, so a lot of pressure, Richie. I, I, I don't know that everybody's going to vote for me to represent them. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's how this works. You represent them all. Richie, a lot of pressure. Phil, play the music. Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything. Well done. All right, question one. And like every time we play, this is multiple choice for the first question. The topic is fishing. This first great question comes to us via Cody Osterhout and Rich Relihan. If you have a question you think is right for media to trivia, you can send it to trivia at TheMediator.com. Question is... Dude's a pro, isn't he? Yeah, he's a smooth man. Really thank good, you. Man. Thank really you. good. Which of the following trout is not actually a trout? Rainbow trout, brook trout, golden trout, or brown trout? Which of the following trout is not actually a trout? Rainbow, brook, golden, or brown? Steve has a question. No, I'm just letting you know I already got the answer. Oh, okay. It's all written we down. We have a confident Steve. <laughs> uh, Jim is erasing. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The ringer is uh, questionable on the first question. Does everybody have an answer? No. Can you repeat the... Uh... Which of the following well, trout on, is not actually a trout? Rainbow, brook, golden, or brown? Rainbow, brook, golden, or brown? Gotcha. All right, go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying golden, Doug saying rainbow, Steve saying brook, Jim saying golden, Ross saying golden, Richie saying golden, Phil saying brook, and Sean saying golden. The correct answer is brook trout. Dang. That's right, boys. Only Phil and Steve got it correct. Brook trout are technically members of I can see me getting it right, but I'm surprised Phil got it right. I edit a fishing podcast every week. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that shit's paying off, huh? Brook trout are technically members of the char family. Many historians consider them the most targeted fish in America up until the late 1800s. That's when brook trout were displaced by stockings of brown trout and rainbow trout across much of their range. Well done. Fill her down. Me and fill her on the board. Topic two. The topic is cooking. According to Section 319 of the Department of Eggs Code of Federal Regulations, for something to legally be called an Italian sausage, it needs to have (laughs) salt, pepper, and one other spice. What is that third spice? This is a legal definition of an Italian sausage. It needs to have salt, pepper, and one other spice. I want you to tell me that third spice. I'm feeling good about this one, too. I have no clue. Feeling very good about this one. Does everybody have an answer? Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying fennel, Doug with no uh, answers, Steve second. saying that fennel, Jim saying so fennel, Ross saying oregano, Richie saying sage, 
Phil saying paprika and Sean without an answer. The correct answer is fennel. Ah, hey! wow. yeah. What'd you have, Phil? I, I, I put paprika. <laughs> or star annies. You're you not could Italian, say star annies. Either, huh? uh, oh. <laughs> so fennel or star annies. Listen, man, I'm like barely Italian. <laughs> I got an Italian name, but you I'm like talk 20... about your Sicilian uh, <laughs> Listen, background. I'm 23%. I did the I did the whole thing. I'm 23% Italian, two percent North African, and a whole bunch of West Western European. Yeah, but he talks about it like he's a, from the Corleone family. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Other rules include that the final product cannot have more than 35% fat or 3% water. If the sausage has been smoked, cooked, or cured. Those words must be used in the product name in the same size font as the words Italian sausage. Can, can you, uh, whoever wrote fennel, can you raise your hand really quick? Corinne, Steve, right and here, buddy. Jim. What makes that way more embarrassing for me is that my brother cooked fennel sausage ravioli the other night. Oh. So, so, I so should have known that. There's a sausage that we've been making that we got from this cookbook that uh, our buddy Steve Kendra has. And me and Yanni, it's me and Yanni's like standard sausage now. It's... Salt, so like deer mm-hmm. meat and fat, right? Yep. Salt, black pepper, fennel. It's Italian sausage. Listen, dude, it's Italian it is sausage. the best. It's like so simple and so good. Everyone who eats it's like, holy shit. It's like, dude, that's three things. It is phenomenal. Mm. Plus prions. Yeah. <laughs> Question three, the topic is big game. What state has the largest population of pronghorn antelope? What state has the largest population of pronghorn antelope? We have some quick answers in the room. Does everybody have an answer? Not Phil. Phil now does. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying Wyoming, 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 Wyoming. (laughs) Phil saying Arizona, Sean saying <laughs> Wyoming. The correct answer is Wyoming. Hey. Woo. Wyoming has a commanding lead on the rest of Dude, America. Phil had such a promising start with that brook <laughs> trout shit, yeah. man. Wyoming has a commanding lead on the rest of America with about 400,000 antelope within its borders. Montana is second at 125,000. Colorado third at 70,000. And New Mexico and South Dakota share fourth place at about 40,000. So Wyoming sits on a really comfortable lead, man. And uh, their numbers, like any state's antelope numbers, fluctuate a lot. I think it was like a decade ago, they were at 500,000. So they they dominate the rest of the country when it comes to goats. Question four, the topic is biology. Ooh. Oh, this is a Jim. Jim Jim's pressure. Jim's pressure. No pressure. Jim. I know. <laughs> oh wait, can I'll I blow go it. back and interrupt this for a second? Yeah, yeah. What do you got? We had a write-in from a biologist saying, "Can we please stop calling pronghorns pronghorn antelope?" Nope. Tell them we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the topic again is biology. This is question four. This chief vein of the thigh supplies oxygenated blood from the heart to the lower extremities. This chief vein of the thigh supplies oxygenated blood from the heart to the lower extremities. Again, a confident room. Corinne is even dancing in her chair. <laughs> no. She feels so good about her answer. No, I don't have the answer. Can you repeat that again? Oh. Yes. Who, uh, Jim? Yeah, if you could repeat it. Okay. Are you yeah. fact-checking me now? Or no, are no, you? No, okay, no. all right. Uh, this chief vein of the thigh supplies oxygenated blood from the heart to the lower extremities. I love if I got it. 
Does everybody? I was thinking you can make, you can make Jim feel yeah. better and classify this under physiology. Yeah, <laughs> I am blanking so hard right now; it's ridiculous. Yeah. Hmm. Do we need a second yet? No, we're good. I know I'm wrong. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying femoral artery, femoral artery, femoral artery. Jim saying vena cava. Ross saying femoral. Richie with no answer. Phil saying femoral, and uh, no, Sean I'm saying femoral. Phil wrote, but you femoral. said femoral. Oh, I, wrote, he, I wrote ephemeral. ephemeral. <laughs> oh, that doesn't count. He's, he's not going to get a point for writing ephemeral. I mean, that's that's my bad. The <laughs> correct answer is femoral artery. But hey, how can an I artery? Realized, I really, I, I'd never seen it yeah, written out. I'd only heard people saying ephemeral, femoral. and I thought it was ephemeral. That's an artery I, that I'm goes. Pro- Phil, that's an artery that goes away. Yep, yep, thank <laughs> you, Steve. I'm going to protest that one though, because a vein can't be an artery. Correct. An artery can't be a yep, vein. That's, oh. That was what tripped me up. That's why that I thought I was wrong. Oh. What blood vessel? I thought oh, when I looked yeah, at yeah, 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 definitions of the word, dude, I no. think that you got to throw that out, Spencer. Oh, man. He's totally oh, right. He's totally right. Because he, he, he won up to. I think Spencer gets a negative score. Man, you got to throw it out. Spencer. I should get plus two then. Yeah, you got to throw it out. That was I'm, what tripped me up too. Mm, I'm Thank seeing places that call it a vein, but not like not educated places. So you you may have me there. Okay, mm. <laughs> how are we dealing with this? I would give Jim the correct answer. I think Jim would have got it if not thrown wait, off by wait, that. Uh, but what was well, Jim's everybody answer? everybody would have got it. Hold on, Jim, let's just do the honesty thing. You would have gotten it? Yeah, I was thinking for more, and then I said, repeat that. Oh, a vein. Well, I can't think of a vein. Yeah, but here's, the thing, here, but here, here's where you're not thinking it through. He said supplies blood too. Yeah. So yeah, you should have been like, you should have recognized that there was a contradiction if you're such a Joe Smarty Pants. I did. That's yeah. why I wanted it repeated. Right. There's a contradiction. Oh. A major yeah, there is a contradiction. Oh, you got a vein sure. supplying. And he's never played before, so he might not feel comfortable. Mm. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. He might I, not know that Spencer is, in fact, fallible. I feel bad about the question. I would give Jim credit because okay, he, credit. he would yeah. know better than anybody. Let's give Jim credit. Keep but I think everybody would. Okay, so whoever, whoever, whoever everybody would have got it. Phil doesn't yeah. get it, though. Ephemeral? Yeah. Ephemeral's no-go. I'm not going to argue with you. Unless Spencer's uh, going to be very generous. Sean, Corinne, uh, who wrote Femoral? Sean, Corinne, Doug, Steve. In Ross. Leonard Lee Rue's 1978 book, The Deer of North America, he Ooh. estimates that a whitetail shot in the femoral artery will only survive about 80 to 120 seconds before it runs out of oxygen in its brain and bloodstream. I can tell you that ain't true. You think faster or slower? Man, my old man hit one when I was a little kid. We found it a mile and a half away. Mm. But hit, nicked, right? It's a difference. Right. He, when we got there, he didn't have any of his stuff. And I remember he took a only thing he had. I can't remember how this worked. Like he had found his arrow somewhere along the way and, and uh, had to use, like, took a, had to gut it. He didn't have his knife or anything. And I remember him taking a, one of those Rocky Mountain broadheads apart and gutting it with one of the single little blades. The entire deer? Gutted the entire deer. Wow. I mean, what do you mean? How do you gut partial part of a deer? <laughs> I don't know if he just like opened it up and then carried on with something like use his hands from there or something. No, he did like he took it apart and I mm. remember him gutting the deer with that little that little wedge of a razor blade. Yeah, I think hog dresses where you leave everything north of the diaphragm. Yeah, they call, there's a, the Scots call it like to gl- like gl- they got a word for it. It's like the diaphragm a down, a glo- or grotching or glotching, yeah, diaphragm down, like, like gut it, gut it, diaphragm down, and they call it like a whatever the hell. I think Put it's that in your trivia. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> we are on to question five. The topic is natural history. This next great question comes to us via Mark David Bradford. If you have a question you think is right for Meteor Trivia, send it to trivia at themeateater.com. Meriwether Lewis brought a dog along for the core oh. discovery expedition. Oh. It's the only animal to complete the entire three-year journey. I need you to either give me the dog's name or tell me its breed. Oh. I didn't even know you had a damn dog. There are, uh, there, there's a sad stat I saw somewhere that there are more statues of the dog than there was, uh... Of York? Yes. Meriwether Lewis brought a dog along for the Corps of Discovery expedition. It's the only animal to complete the entire three-year journey. I need you to either well, give like, me what, what dog the breeds, dog's I don't name know what the hell dog or tell me its breed. Yeah. I should know the name, too, but I can't yeah, think I of have it. No the name of the dog. Kind of breeds they had back then. I just had an illustrator illustrate that scene of them killing the first mule deer. Oh, and was the dog in it? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, great. Oh, really? <clears throat> yep, I had to describe to the illustrator what kind of dog to draw. I Afterwards, I want... they had that dog when they were starving over Lolo Pass and no one thought to eat it? <laughs> they thought about it. They ate oh. over 200 dogs on the expedition, but they never ate this dog. No shit. Yeah. I had no idea about this dog. Jim, tell me about the color that they painted the dog when we're done with this. Okay. I want to visit that. Does everybody have an answer? No. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying a Newfoundland. We have Doug saying uh, an American mix, a.k.a. a mutt. Steve saying a blue tiger. Blue, blue tick. Blue tick. Jim saying a Newfoundland. Ross saying a wolfhound. Richie saying a hound. Uh, Phil saying a Newfoundland. And Sean saying a bloodhound. The correct answer is it was a Newfoundland named Seaman. How do you guys not That's know right. this? That's, That's right. I've got Corinne I've got has a Newfoundland. Newfoundland. That's right. That's I never heard you. Wow. A Newfie. How, how, how do you spell that name? S-E-A-M-A-N. Oh, okay. uh-huh. Now, Steve, watch how this little tidbit <laughs> ties the game together. On May 14, 1805, Lewis and Clark had to perform surgery on an artery in Seaman's hind leg that was severed by a beaver bite. My favorite Lewis and Clark historian, Francis Hunter, speculates they would have used a $3.50 tourniquet that they purchased from a pharmacy in Philadelphia to stop the bleeding. According to journal entries, Seaman never went into shock and made a full recovery 10 days later. Attacked by a beaver. Attacked by a beaver. How come that guy never comes on the podcast? Remember I said we should do that? (laughs) Wait. Corinne's getting there. I have a random question, but $3.50 yeah. tourniquet, that is seems that expensive. adjusted for inflation? Because that yeah. seems crazy that expensive. expensive. That seems like a stout-ass price, yeah. don't it? It identified yeah. it as an axle tourniquet, which I couldn't find anything about that online. So Bit it must have been something real special. Now, I'd, I'd seen it argued about what color uh, semen was. And it, sa- it said that uh, in modern depictions of semen, he's often black because that's what a lot of modern Newfoundlands are. But if you look at the oldest paintings of semen. He was often like white with brown spots or black spots. So what color is the Newfoundland in your book? Ours was black. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, some might have had a little have brown in it, that. But, but it was, it was black. Did, no. you, did you get that one, Ross? No, no I don't think no. anyone got it other than Jim. No. Corinne got oh, it. And Phil got, got it. it. One more thing. If you want to be well prepared for emergencies in the field like Lewis and Clark, Meat Eater is now selling a Meat Eater Hunter Series Acute Trauma Care Kit. It is everything you'd want in a trauma care kit, including a tourniquet, trauma shears, splint, bandages, gauze, and more. That one, you guys, great. That one was a reach. Very good host. (laughs) Oh, no. Spot on, dude. And is the cost $3.50? Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Roughly. We are halfway through trivia. Looking at the leaderboard, we have Steve and Jim and Corinne with four, and then the rest of the crowd with roughly two. It's a barn burner. Question six, the topic is conservation. 
What state has the most game wardens? Oh. What state has the most game wardens? Hmm. Oh, man. It's got to be this one. I'm making a wild-ass guess here. It's got to be this one. I can rationalize my wild-ass guess. What state has the most game wardens? Does everybody have an answer? Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying Texas, Doug saying Pennsylvania, Steve saying Missouri, Jim saying Texas, Ross saying Pennsylvania, Richie saying Arizona, Phil saying Colorado, and Sean saying Texas. The correct answer is Texas. Texas has the most at 460, followed by New York at 400, North Carolina at 370, and California at 350. Ironically, despite North Carolina having the third most game wards in the country, as we discussed on a previous game of trivia, they ranked dead last in game warden salary. Can I tell you why I went Missouri? Please. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. You said it was an educated guess. Let's let's hear the background. They got that, that uh they got that license plate tax, you know, that helps pay for conservation. Mm. Uh. So I thought maybe they were so flush with money that they were able to stock up. I don't know. But New York was second? Second. Wow. Think about I was debating between Texas, Florida, and California just because of population. Question seven. The topic is gear. What is the most purchased center fire rifle ammunition in America? What is the most purchased center fire rifle ammunition in America? We're talking caliber here? Correct. I feel like there's some... Yeah. yeah. Let's put your answer now, buddy. You understand what <laughs> I'm going about. You know this one, don't you? Huh? You know this one already. I know it, yeah. I know. Everybody has an answer. It looks like go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying 308, Doug saying 30-odd-6, Steve saying 223, Jim saying 30-odd-6, Ross saying 30-odd-6, Richie saying 30-odd-6, Phil without an answer, and Sean saying the 223. The correct answer... Is the 223 Remington? Oh. I'm tied back. I don't know why I didn't think I was, of that. I was worried you were going to get me. So I was obvious. worried there might be nuance with like 556 five, there. This stat but comes from our friends yeah. at Federal Premium as well as a number of other sources. The top five most sold rounds are 223 Remington, 308 Winchester, 30 odd six Springfield, 3030 Winchester, and 270 Winchester. Wow, so that's you like in order. That's in order. That's in order. Man. Y'all gave pretty relevant answers. 223 dominates, though, along with 308 because it's also popular among plinkers. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's so obvious once I saw Sean's board. Question eight. The topic is biology. This next great question comes to us via Paul Province. If you think you have a question that's right for media <laughs> trivia, send it to trivia at themedia.com. An animal most active at dawn and dusk is crepuscular. An animal most active at nighttime is nocturnal. And an animal most active at daytime is blank. An animal most active at dawn and dusk is crepuscular. Most active at night is nocturnal. And an animal most active at daytime is blank. Quick writing, but it didn't look like it didn't look like confident writing. Everybody have an answer? Oh, Go yeah. ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying perky, haha. <laughs> Doug saying sunny. Uh, Steve saying diurnal. Jim saying diurnal. Oh. Ross saying awake. Richie saying diurnal. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, he gets it. Diurnal. We have Phil saying not a vampire and Sean saying diurnal. The correct answer is diurnal. 
humans and it's most. Hands. Steve, Sean, Richie. Anyone hmm. else? Jim. Man. Humans and most other primates are considered diurnal, but this puts us in the minority when you zoom out a bit because only about 20% of mammals also sleep at night. Me and Jim are neck and neck. We have two questions left, and looking at the leaderboard, we have Steve and Jim with six right each, and then Sean and Corinne with five right each. And the rest mm. of us are sucking wind. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us are going to Google. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Question nine. The topic is public land. What federal agency has the most acres of public land? What federal agency has the most acres of public land? Now, I would not accept Department of Interior. I'm looking for an agency within the Department of the Interior. Hmm, man. I'm going to write. <laughs> Everybody have an answer, Steve? Do you? <sighs> yeah. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne saying uh, BLM. Is that what you're saying? BLM. Doug saying uh, U.S. Forestry. Steve saying BLM. Jim saying BLM. Ross saying BLM. Richie saying National Parks. Phil saying BLM and Sean saying BLM. The correct answer is BLM. BLM has 248 million acres, which is 10% of all the land in the country. That's followed by the Forest Service at 193 million acres, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at 89 million acres, and Park Service at 84 million acres. I want to say that I wanted it to be forestry. (laughs) (laughs) We are on to our last question, and we have Steve... And Jim tied with seven, and Sean and Corinne tied with six. So we could potentially have a four-way tie for first place. The topic is fishing. If someone says they caught a limit of copper bellies, (laughs) what popular game fish are they referring to? If someone says they caught a limit of copper bellies, what popular game fish are they referring to? A lot of pressure for four of you. Steve, Jim, Sean, and Corinne. Corinne, are you nervous? Mm, a little bit. A little bit. Jim, are you nervous? Mm-hmm, very nervous. Very yeah, nervous. I'm not a fish I squeezer. <laughs> I'm going to lose because of brook trout in this question. <laughs> Does everybody have an answer? No, I don't. No. Um, you going to come up? You, bet, just, you better write something yeah, down because you're right, playing right. first place here. Go ahead and reveal your answers. We have Corinne with no answer. Doug saying carp. Steve saying bluegill. We'll read the rest of my thing. Jim saying pumpkin seed. Steve says we call them rust bellies. (laughs) Ross saying bass. (laughs) Richie with no answer. Phil saying smallmouth. That's a good answer, Phil. It's not right. It's a good answer. Sean saying yellow perch. The correct answer is bluegill. Don't they hybridize with pumpkin seeds? That's close, Jim. I don't think I'm going to give it to you, though. What? <laughs> They're not the same. They were given this name because of the vibrant orange and yellow coloration you find on a bluegill's belly, which is most vibrant on males during the spawn. The copper belly moniker is most popular in the South. But according to Encyclopedia Britannica, other common nicknames for bluegill include blue sunfish, sunny, sunperch, copperheads, bream, brim, and roach clowns. 
Call them big old rust bellies. That's good too. I like that. Well, Steve wins meat eater trivia. <laughs> my <laughs> donation. My, have we upped the donation? Are we still sitting at a at a hundred bucks? Still at a hundo. I think we should increase it. Okay. My donation. I would like my one hundred dollars to go to the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, which I'll point out is very serious about paying for the science on CWD. <laughs> That's good. Rich, thanks for playing. Uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one more thing, too, because we talked about this a little bit in the past. Jim, can you give us a heads up on uh, your boy's progress from having been oh. pretty banged up in a car wreck? Yeah, thank Nick. My son Cody was in a head-on collision you know, back in early October. Both broken legs, badly shattered arm, but he's got a positive attitude, and he's he's going to rehab. He's now walking with, uh, with uh, a walker. And when he pulls it together, he's going to go uh, see Luke Combs. Yes, he is. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right after the accident, they were they were planning to go to Luke Holmes and and weren't able to go <clears throat> and through Steve, um, we're gonna we're gonna be able to let him go when he gets better, when he's able to. He'll he'll be able to go back and shotgun a beer with him. Oh yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but you know what? I bet it won't be as fast. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from experience. All right, buddy, thanks for joining. Uh anything am I missing anything? No. Have a good year. Make a New Year's resolution. I don't know. What should it be? I got one. I just came up with mine. I hadn't thought about that before. What's that? Keep on keeping on, man. (laughs) 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 All right, everybody. Thanks. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.